0: I'm
1: Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics.
0: And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. You're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco.
1: All things reptile related.
0: And the people who love them.
1: As part of the Repeticulture Network.
0: Well, hello. What's up, buddy? salutations i was going to be late on purpose i figured we'd we'll start the new year with a lateness and i was like no 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 why not what's funny is ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages justin smith just sent me a picture of his new podcasting setup and it is it's gorgeous it's got monitors and
1: it's freaking
0: sweet it's it's sweet meanwhile i have this beautiful boom arm that you're seeing on the screen right now and it is Plastic vised onto a two by four, which is being <laughs> which is being weighted down with a uh, aluminum or actually it's probably steel. It's a steel hatchet and a another metal weight. Because if, and I, if I barely touch it, it's gonna it's gonna fall over.
1: I got the TV, I got the mouse now, so I can like d- change my music while I'm here. I can watch nice. the office. Nice. I got an arm coming, so this TV will be attached to the desk, but, like, come up and out some.
0: Um, Look at you, coming up in dude, the big world.
1: yeah, man. I got another camera. I've had another camera that Jake will use for THPs now, so that we're not trying to, like, fit both of us in frame. Um, yeah, so. Starting off 2022 with a bang with episode 103 of Snakes and Stogies, brought to you by future sound pythons
0: right there in the corner kids with their schmexy new logo yes i actually i like the old logo i mean it was a good logo but i feel like this one is way more encompassing of the vibe that is the gendra
1: the the color i feel like I don't feel like it's actually like a fact that, you know, you stick to a certain color scheme with the brand, stick with the a logo, you know, update the logo and stuff. But like you, you keep those two core components, I think. And that really over time, it, it, it builds itself, you know, people, um like the background for the PCE logo, you know, on the Facebook and stuff is that gradient of like the yellow to like teal. Right. And I haven't changed that since like day one. And I think that that, that plays a part in, um brand recognition. I don't know. It you know, it's I guess it depends on who you ask, but I think if you you keep the color theme and you keep things fonts and things similar over time, you know, with subtle adjustments, it uh it does its job.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: Um but yeah, it's a new year. Um
0: crazy, right?
1: Freaking freaking pumped i guess uh i mean should we mention sort of changes sort of what to expect
0: yeah i mean we i mean for those of you who are unaware the herbiculture (laughs) magazine is taking a, a indefinite hiatus as of right now Uh, The website will still be up and running and uh, it's going to have more THN stuff on it. And in the near future, uh, certain individuals such as myself and Justin and maybe a few others, we're going to keep adding, you know, articles that we write if people want to read them. I've got uh, plans on that front. Yeah. So unfortunately, the magazine will not be around anymore for the time being. But Justin and I are going to put some more effort into the network itself and uh, there's going to be some uh, more consistency in terms of the uh, side burner shows, mm-hmm. i.e. ContraCast and Corn Stars. So why don't you, you want to take it away from there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the magazine, we made an announcement, an official announcement that sort of explained what was going on, why it is pretty much where it's at. Um, thankfully, advertisers... Um, you know, Reptiles Express, Toad Ranch, um, Black Box. Everyone was was very cool about the whole thing, and um, I was. It wasn't nearly as as rough of a of a sort of a transition as I thought it would be. So, yeah, definitely plan to put more into the network YouTube. Um, not really necessarily having new shows or anything like that come into the into the into the fray, but just doing more here putting out the other shows more consistently that have been inconsistent like phil said uh conjure cast in particular corn stars i feel like we've been fairly consistent with that i mean we're only three episodes deep but it is what it is uh and then i mean venom exchange so the first episode of that dropped yesterday i listened to it as soon as you posted the link and it was freaking awesome me and my dad listened to it while we were building a, a mouse rack
0: so awesome, man. I'm glad you guys loved it. Great. Yeah, the uh, I'm still waiting for those of you who are using Apple podcast and Google Play. Apple and Google basically said, whoa, 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 we have no idea who you are. Yep. So hopefully in the next 24 to 48 hours, they'll be on there. But it's already on Spotify. And yeah. uh, it's already on SoundCloud. For those of you who actually have a SoundCloud subscription and want to follow it there. And uh, we got at least three more episodes done and we're going to release them as time goes on and we're going to have the list of people we're having is just it's going to be awesome. I don't want to give away any spoilers or anything but it's people that have that you want to hear from or you didn't know even know existed and you want to. So,
1: What are you smoking upon this eve?
0: This evening I'm smoking a Gurkha Royal Challenge which I had not heard about before.
1: Oh man, I haven't had one of those in years. Yeah, and, I forgot those existed. We I'll had tell you, it.
0: It was given to me by a uh, a friend from work, and it's it's a phenomenal smoke. I, I mean, from the five puffs I've taken so far, uh, it almost has upon the initial drag. It has like a crystallized, almost like the the crackling that you'd get from a flavored cigar, but it's definitely not flavored. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming it's some kind of Connecticut. It's... Yeah, I
1: think so. They had a Connecticut and a Maduro.
0: I yeah, believe, well, obviously, this is too. definitely yeah. not the Maduro, but uh, it's, it's really nice so far. Like, real quick, you know, it took a minute for me to toast it. I don't know if you guys could mm-hmm. see. I didn't know if that was my lighter being funny or if it was the tobacco. When I took it out, it was in cellophane in an aluminum tube, and the cellophane felt real good, but when I touched the actual tobacco – it kind of felt a little dry, a little stale. So we'll uh we'll see how she rolls. But what do you uh what are you partaking in this evening?
1: I got this on air sign for Christmas and it's freaking sweet, but it when you light it up you
0: can't see. Oh, it. that looks so good, man.
1: Just my little desk is accruing a bunch of a bunch of bullshit more or less, but um so I got some Davidoffs off for my birthday and uh I got another humidor for my birthday, so I I made that one my aging box. So now I have sort of my box with my everyday smokes. Now I've got a box of stuff that I'm sitting on. And uh, I pulled this Davidoff out cuz I was like first 6 smokes of the year, I ain't gonna I ain't gonna just smoke anything, you know. So Yeah. I uh, I've had few Davidoffs, so I really I you know, Davidoffs to me, I've always heard, you know, they're overrated, they're expensive, they're you know, they're good cigars, but are they really worth the $20 price tag whatever? Um this is the Nicaragua box pressed, so Nice. Let me give it a shot. It's I mean the draw is extremely light. Like there's there's no resistance whatsoever so far. And uh yeah, I mean we'll we'll see. I'm going to take my time with it. So Excellent. What's up Casey? What's going on guys?
2: Oh boy, look at he here.
0: Yeah. I feel like you're in a furnished basement, Casey.
3: Uh, I am. I'm at, I'm at my parents' house right now. So oh, nice. not the typical uh, bathroom setup that you guys know and love
0: me for. <laughs>
3: the globe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, yes. <laughs> I'll never forget that. The globe of the bathroom. I love it.
3: It has to have some ambiance, okay?
0: It does. So, you're Yeah, no, I'm god. at my parents' house right now. so That's cool. That's very cool. Oh, man. So... 2022 we got a bunch of great people in here billy jenkins steve pool ryan cox jt the podfather himself lurking Ooh, in the right shadows here. cool so this is good man Dude, Casey, this mouse is a life changer the, the mouse the like, electronic computer mouse yeah like
1: i can i have my mouse set up so i can scroll through things and and do things from five feet away
0: Nice. Look at you joining the 21st oh, century. Oh my God.
1: The only thing I need to figure out. So I got this TV, this monitor for free from Raj. Cause he had, apparently his parents just moved down and they had like six TVs. He said, so we had this little 32 inch at the other shop for our security cameras. He wasn't using it. So he gave it to me and I have the remote. It was covered in like curry powder or something. He's Indian. So there's always like some sort of weird seasonings and stuff around the shop, usually loose in a drawer somewhere. So everything's just covered. And, uh, I'm trying to, I need to figure out how to change the settings on it and like lighten the screen some because I feel like it's, for me, it seems a little dark, but that's that's some first world problem stuff right there. So I can play WoW from across the room. Yeah, i know I've you're never playing played playing WoW. Anything about a free console. TV is what I'm getting out of this. No, I just, I'm trying to, I need to find the manual because all the buttons I press, nothing happens. I'm trying to get the display options unless I can change them on my Mac.
0: I'm a. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get this this boom arm working correctly in terms of like, not. Well, first of all, like I put it right here because I felt like it's perfectly right in front of my face. So forgive me if it's overly loud or poppy because I'm, I'm I'm popping into it. But I got to figure out this whole two by four scenario because this thing ain't gonna cut it week in and week out. So, but it's a work in progress, much like everything else. Uh, Great. Also, I before I forget. Myself.
3: Thank you for all for yes. uh, showing up to uh, Snakes and Stogies. I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic episode we tonight. Uh, we're brought to you by uh, Puget Sound Pythons. I think we've already done this before, but I don't really have <laughs> yeah. like Snakes and Stogies by myself, so I'm going to so, try to not have beer. We also have... <laughs> you
1: guys back? <laughs> because so the, the magazine had okay? a Patreon. I've switched the Patreon for the magazine over to a THN Patreon, and I added a $1 tier, so for a dollar a month, if you want to support the show... There's a couple options on there. No pressure. If not, no big deal. We just left, you know, it's there. So I don't like to be pushy with Patreons. Just letting people know it exists for a dollar or up if you want. You know, there you go.
0: Excellent. So how was everyone's holidays? How was everyone's New Year's?
1: Uh, I think New Year's Eve. I was in bed and asleep before like 1130. So You're kidding. Dude, I'm, I don't, New Year's Eve for me, it just, it's, I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't do much for me. You know, it's, it's another year. There's nothing terribly exciting about that for me. You know, it's just.
0: Well, Casey, you went out of town, right? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I went out to uh, Chattanooga with some of my friends from uh, high school, actually. Chattanooga. It's kind of cool. It's the first time we've actually really been able to hang out together in like a couple years. But yeah, it was crazy where we're walking around out in Chattanooga. We're wearing shorts and a t-shirt because it's 80 degrees. Uh, We're having a hard time finding restaurants because for some reason, like, (laughs) uh, apparently it's not common for restaurants to be open on New Year's Day in uh, Chattanooga. So we went to the same restaurant like three times. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was a great time. Uh, I wish we could have shot some fireworks off. I feel like it's, you know, it's breaking the tradition a little bit if we can't have fireworks. But we didn't this time.
0: Yeah, even if you don't actually light like them yourself, as long as you're in like arm's reach of them, I think that's fine.
3: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. We definitely had some neighbors and stuff like that shooting them off. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, no, good time. Uh, it's kind of weird though. Like I said, eighty degrees. I come back here, and there's like dusting up in the mountains, like the very next day. So, yeah, I uh, actually spent most of the day cutting up a tree with my dad because we had a over at the, the cabin. We had a tree fall right across the uh, the driveway, so I couldn't get in. Dude, the so. winds
1: were winds up there insane.
3: Yeah, like we had full it on thunderstorms. Unbe- yeah, it was, it was
1: unbelievable last night. We're talking like hurricane level winds, but like very little rain. It was it was crazy. I don't know if you got that down there, Phil, or not, but
0: No, not at all.
1: Holy crap. Like I woke up at five, five this morning and thought the freaking house was about to blow over. Like
0: You're having a Dorothy yeah. moment.
1: Yeah. Started clicking my heels together and everything. In my red heels.
3: Yeah, I have an old cage that I'm trying to get fixed um, on the back porch right now. And it blew over in the middle of the night, which was uh, very loud and kind of scary.
0: Wow. Yeah, actually, I saw the, the picture you uh, sent us earlier. That tree was I, – I, forgive me for – if nobody's ever experienced this, good for them because it's a, it's a crappy thing to have to do what you did today. Like, it's just annoying, you know. But that tree was the perfect size where it's too big – to just drag off the road yourself. But it's, and it's also too big that you couldn't just drive over it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely.
3: And like, I hadn't been to the cabin in a few days because I've been out of town. So I'm going around and I pull up to the driveway and it's like, crap, you know, I pull that up. I'm like, well, I know what I'm doing today. You know, I thought I was going to go up and, you know, check on the animals, make sure they were okay. Maybe throw some stuff together to kind of see, and, you know, just make a quick little day up there. And then I saw that. I was like, I got to call my dad. We got to get our chainsaws ready to go. You know? Yep. So it was kind of fun, though. You know, I like doing that kind of thing. So,
0: yeah, it's cool to get uh, uh, outdoorsy in that regard from time to time. Yeah.
3: And, I mean, me and my dad, we're, we're known to fight a lot when it comes to manual labor and stuff like that. So this time I was kind of very very go with the flow with my dad which made it go infinitely better so you know i'm 27 now so it's good that i finally figured out that hey you know when we're doing something like that just kind of roll over a little bit and just let him do his thing and maybe we won't start yelling at each other so that's good
0: yeah only took you 27 years to figure that out right (laughs) all right well 2022 yeah
1: hell yeah (laughs) fighting over who gets to destroy stuff with the chainsaw
3: yeah Yeah, I i mean that was a Another big part of it, too, was I didn't, you know, we kind of took turns a little bit with it, but for the most part, you know, my dad had to get a hip replacement uh, two years ago now, so I mostly just let him use the chainsaw, and like, I just dragged stuff off in the woods and threw it in. So, we made the rabbits around there happy,
1: so there's that. Nice. I, honestly, the the thought of Casey with the chainsaw
0: is mildly terrifying. <laughs> The, the sheer, the sheer frustration man. on his face. Like, I imagine him, like, looking at it because I feel like Casey's very much like me where you can't just hack at it. You have to be, like, strategic in your cuts. Surgical. Yes. Am yeah, I, am absolutely. I,
3: like, you got to know exactly yeah. which two you're going to cut at which time. And then, like, okay, well, I got to drag these out of the way now. and Yeah. Yeah. And... The problem is, like, neither of us are very, like, well-versed with a chainsaw, so we kept doing that classic thing where you'd cut in, and then the log would, like, bend in Uh, just enough to just catch the chain. Yeah. And we'd have to, like, go through this whole process of getting the chain unstuck and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, for the people listening that don't know, you're supposed to cut down and then go up a little bit, and we didn't do that, so... For future reference, uh, watch some videos on how to cut a tree up with a chainsaw because it's very annoying to have to uh, unpry a chainsaw that's wedged in between a tree that's bent down.
0: Yeah, when I I went and saw you in Georgia when we went to Helen um, and we met my friend JT. (laughs) What's so funny? Nothing. (laughs) So my lovely girlfriend, Anna Maria, (laughs) is in the group chat and she is Breaking my stones about how I cut with a knife. Anyway. By the way, Casey, and Maria says hello. Um, What the hell was I going to say? No, we're talking about chainsaws and cutting. Something about JT. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So my good friend JT, uh, he lives up in northeast Georgia, and I don't know how he got into this, but he had a ton of pine and oak on his property, and he got into, like, the hobby of and forgive me if i'm saying this wrong felling trees basically like the art of being a lumberjack and Sounds like right me
1: yeah so for uh, outfit and all
0: well, well i mean he always wore flannel so that's uh, irrelevant but I mean, it's comfy but yeah but he would show me he's like yeah i have this type of chainsaw for this and that type of chainsaw for that and then he showed me like these special wedges that he made from wood so that he can position the tree and cut it just right so he can stand there and let it fall exactly where he wants it. It was absolutely incredible. But then I got the think that I was like, you're just chopping down all the trees on your property, you psycho.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I can see you like getting into that hobby and trying to like learn how to cut down everything and then you turn around like three months later and you're like, oh, I've clear cut everything. Yeah.
0: It's my property. Yeah, isn't,
1: isn't there some sort of like competitive sport of like log cutting I think that's be, like, what I think
0: it is. I think it's that the felling like, or falling yeah, or
1: maybe that yeah, maybe that is where they like have to carve certain things and like cut certain widths in half in a certain amount of. I don't, I don't.
0: Know. Yeah,
1: it's on ESPN. Eight the Ocho,
0: the Ocho. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Cox, you're a jerk.
1: Phil, <laughs> <laughs> get it, get stuck between the slots and the fork. <laughs> oh man.
0: Oh, all right. 2022. Love it. We're off with a
1: bang. I am ready to start warming up some snakes. Are you now? We're actually over the break because we've been gone for 17 days, I believe, 18 days. Uh, Over the course of that two weeks, it's been legitimately mid-70s, damn near every day.
0: That's crazy. And so man. it
1: almost got to the point where I just just like, why am I even bothering cooling some of these things? And of course I was talking to Jake about it the other day. Cause he came by the shop and was hanging out. And I was like, man, I'm going to pull those snakes. He's like, don't cause he looked at the weather and this week it's supposed to be like the forties and fifties and it is actually yeah. cold now. So I was like, I guess I'll wait. I was originally planning to pull stuff the 17th and uh, I guess I'll, I'll see how it goes. I may end up pulling stuff a little earlier. Um, Mainly the beards and the corns, uh, and then just leave like the diones and the bimaculata, and uh, leave those in a little extra.
0: Give them more time. Let me ask you: with that spike in the temperature, did you go in and like you know change water bowls or or take mm -hmm. poop out or anything? Okay,
1: I I emptied bowls, so I refilled bowls, and then about two weeks ago, I went ahead and just pulled bowls and dumped them. So they don't have any water at the moment, but they're not going to you know really need any for the next. Week or so, because they're going to be coming out soon. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, most of them, almost all of them, were were out and about, and you know, interested in what I was doing and watching me, and and all that. So,
0: we shall see. Good stuff. How many things you got put in the cold?
1: Uh, almost half. As far as rat snakes go, the thorn scrubs, um, multiple pairs of bears multiple two pairs of corn snakes. Uh, the Dion's, the Bimaculata, and I think that's about it. But about half of that is Baird's, and some of them, not all of them, a couple of them are just extra males that I just decided to put down just to cut back on food, you know. Um, which actually, that's the other one of the other reasons I hadn't warmed them up yet is because I had I took kind of a hit on my, my feeder uh supply because. I had a issue with my reservoir tank and my, my mouse rack where they weren't getting water for mm. a couple of days because I usually clean on Sundays, check on Wednesdays and then clean on Sundays again. And at some point between that Sunday and that Wednesday they weren't getting any water and so I lost a handful of adults to cannibalism for whatever oh, reason. Yeah. When mice get thirsty they get bloodthirsty and oh, literally yeah. whoever's the weakest in the group is the one that gets turned into food. Yep. Um, which they had food, but Dehydration seems to make them do pretty weird things, uh, so I took a hit on on production there. It's a little bit of a setback, so I got that other rack built now as of yesterday. And now that I have some some fuzzies and stuff that I'll be raising up, I'll start stocking those those bins and hopefully be back in full swing within the next I don't know two or three months. So
0: it's good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um,
3: so going back over to the warming stuff up right now. I've kind of noticed with, um, you know, the weather in the southeast seems to pretty consistently have a decent warm up for like two or three weeks. And uh, like around Christmas time ish, like sometime around in there. So what I think I've done with my collection is you kind of have to pick which side of that you want to warm up during. And I've yeah. picked the early side. So in other words, I warm stuff up around Christmas. Um, usually I start dropping things around uh, Halloween. Because mm-hmm. I know Halloween's going to have, you know, some nights down into the fifties, into the sixties, stuff like that. Which for what I have is fine. Um, I'm starting to think if I get heavier into the colubrids, I need to do so. Like the colubrids go to sleep during Christmas, mm-hmm. instead, to kind of break that uh that cycle of what you're saying of everything wakes up for two or three weeks during Christmas because, oh my God, it's 75 degrees and I don't yeah, know then why. Drops
1: again and they're like, what the hell.
3: So I don't know. I feel like it gets a little bit colder like the second go around. So like January, February gets a little bit colder. Sure.
0: Even done by me. I mean, it's it's sixty five right now and it was eighty three yesterday. It was it was like eighty two today. So yeah. yeah.
1: But that's that's one of the reasons why if this and I mean it's been fairly warm the last couple of Christmases here. Um but maybe I should, I should look into getting a cooler to where I can keep them at a steady 55 for a nice consistent chunk of time. Maybe do it like Casey's saying. Cause I know uh, like our buddy JT at silent Hill reptiles um, and a couple of our other buddies put down their stuff around October. I think Jessica Hare at uh, Hare hollow farm when her corns and stuff, she puts them down earlier in the year and warms them up late uh, earlier too. So Maybe I'll end up switching to that next year, this year, actually, I guess. But we'll see. Or I may just end up investing in a, in a cooler and and using that. But for me, like, cooling is more than just getting the snakes ready. It's it's loading up on feeders, like loading up on pinkies, getting the freezer stocked. And, uh, I mean, I kind of dropped the ball on that one this time. But, you know, now that we're going to be up in production, you know, Jake and I with, with Smith Farms stuff, and uh, then... It won't be an issue anymore, but we'll see. Still kind of navigating the whole thing.
0: That's good. I uh, I made a, a, a bonehead error. So I've been talking about pairing up these IJs for pff, three years now, whatever it is, and they're just so small, man, and I'm just apprehensive. And, you know, Billy, you know, brings me out of my apprehensiveness, and he's like, dude, just put them together, see what happens. So I did. And they basically look at each other and they sleep together in their hide together. And, uh, that's about the extent of it. And I start, I was watching them like, man, they're like cruising around they're They're active all night. And I'm like, this is weird. Why are they doing this? And it occurred to me that I never turned their heat off. (laughs) So for the past uh, probably 50 days or so, I mean, probably like, yeah, a month and a half, whatever, almost two months, They've been together and they're not, they're not cooling down at all. They're just, they're just living together and it's like 80 in the tub. And I'm like, what the hell did I do? So I unplugged the heating element and we'll see what happens. Another year without IJs, whatever. Bye. See,
1: that's IJs in particular. I really, I've had this conversation with Jake and Billy where I really wonder if you can breed chondros year round. And they're occupying a pretty similar range. Why wouldn't you not be able to do that with with IJs?
0: Right. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. The only and, and when I say cool them down, I'm they're literally going from eighty to seventy. So it's not like they're they're not getting cold at all. They just don't have a heating element to give them a hot spot or, or really to to they don't really have that. There, there there's a noticeable degrees, drop. There's a noticeable drop yes. of 10 degrees in ambient as well as not having a hot spot. Excuse me for fumbling my words there. But but yeah. And,
1: even with the chondros, though, I didn't really bother doing that. I put the male in with the female and just waited until I saw action because she was receptive and that was the right window.
0: You know. Yeah. But did you do it in July or did you do it in February?
1: I initially put them together in June and okay. got eggs in December. December,
0: right so if you had flip flop that around if you had put them together in december would it be the same result i don't think it would
1: i don't know i'd like i said i i knew she would she would let him know when, when she was ready so you know i saw a, a handful of copulations between that time of the, that six months um but didn't see actual like egg action until you know november december so
0: yeah yeah i think um, that it, I agree with you that it doesn't really matter but at the same time if the room is naturally going to drop I might as well kind of go with the flow of things you know what I mean mm-hmm. that was my thought process on it so like for example I have that one uh pyromolina that is not has not eaten I got the thing in Daytona and it's a flawless specimen it was eating uh it was cyst fed prior to my acquisition of it and I am not a big fan of assist feeding. I don't like the stress of it. I like to try ulterior motives. And I tried almost all my ulterior motives and it didn't want it. And, you know, everyone says pyros need a winter. So I put her in a brand new container with some of her um, uh, flattened toilet paper rolls that she had you know, pooped and peed on and a water bowl. And now she's living in the living room, and which is about between 68 and 71, maybe on average. Keep it a little chilly in there. And she's out chilling, slithering around, loving life. So I don't think it's cold enough to – she definitely knows it's it's a seasonal change, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's cold enough to instigate that feeding just yet. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to wait another – what, this is January now. So I figure at the end of the month, I'll put her back on heat and give her food and see what happens.
1: So. I've heard of people doing something like that with Alterna, where they just, they, you know, they come out of the egg, they don't even feed them. Like they go into brumation, they get their first meals when they warm them up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, th- this is not a real brumation at all. This is just a temperature drop with no, you know, hot spot, but it's the best I can do with what I got right now. You know, I mean, I have the chiller, but I, I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable putting a baby in a freezer so to speak you know what i mean like i just maybe it's it. maybe, yeah I'm, I'm a wuss so yeah
1: my dad uh, you know my dad when he was doing all the alternative stuff and, and king stuff he had a nice like six foot tall cooler that he could set to 55 on the dot and he just covered the front with like a sheet of tarp that he could just roll up when he needed to check on things and of course hindsight's twenty twenty and I wish I had known that I could have probably used the hell out of that thing because just as inconsistent as as the winners are, especially here in the southeast, it's just it's really frustrating, especially with the with the bimaculata and the diones that really do need to get consistently cold, like not chilly, like cold, like fifties at least or at most, um, to have weeks that are seventy five almost 80 you know 74 76 it's i don't know if those are even going to go this year i'm going to try them out anyways and see what happens but it it's it sucks like the corns and bears i'm not really all that worried about you know they haven't been fed they've been kept dark they've gotten colder weather so they know something's up but with the the stuff like the chinese stuff in particular and i need to talk to the crawdaddy about this um and see what he's doing or what he did because he's they've been having the same issue up there in, in West Virginia yeah. yeah like it's been freakishly warm up there um, and so I need to talk to him and, and sort of iron that out but it sucks it's frustrating
0: yeah and well and that, see here's the thing too is I think I go back to like what Matt most told me a while ago was in the wild there's gonna be peaks and valleys the same way that you'll have days where it's you know 45 46 degrees day and night for a whole week and then you'll spike up to like a 70 degree day and then it'll go back and at the same time it'll be 40 at night but it'll be 60 during the middle of the day when the sun's at its peak you know so those peaks and valleys are okay and i don't see why something like the dion's where you live in a climate that gets to the temperature they need naturally i think if you just like put them in the garage so to speak you know figuratively speaking if there was ups and downs in the temp, I don't think it would play that big of a factor because it's going to be the same thing in the wild where they're from, right? You know, it's not it's not straight 47 degrees exactly for however long it needs to be, or is it? I don't really know.
3: So did you guys have a chance to listen to the uh, Clubroid uh episode about brumation?
0: 100%, man. What a great episode.
3: It was really I got to listen to it on the way back from uh, Chattanooga this week. So I thought it was really interesting when they talked about the uh, the concept of the uh, hibernaculum, where they can go underground to a place yes. that it might be the only spot in like a hundred meter, hundred square meter area, right. but it's where every snake in the area goes to, and it stays like a consistent fifty ish Fahrenheit, right? Maybe a little bit colder, a little bit hotter, but how many hormones are triggered by being in complete darkness and by being around 50 degrees like that for, you know, four or three
1: months, something like that. Yeah. That's been my question for a long time is like, what's the minimum, you know, like how, like what, how long, not the minimum in terms of like how fast can I cool these and then pair them. But naturally, like physiologically, what's the, what, how long do they have to be cold and dark for spermatogenesis or any of those hormonal shifts to happen? You know, like, could I cool corns in theory for three weeks and be like, warm up, cool it's winter and their bodies have said, okay, I did my thing. Like, let's go. Um, I don't know if there's any studies or anything that have been done on that. I I listened to that brumation episode. I need to listen to it again uh, because like the last half or so I was doing something else and wasn't completely focused on, on,
2: yeah, it was kind of
1: in and out as far as paying attention to, to what was being said. Right. Um. But that's just something I've wondered about, especially with the corns, and I wonder about that here. I mean, we were just talking about that the other day in the group chat, you know, like are the snakes locally, at least, you know, where me and Phil are, are they truly going down or do they just have like week or two week periods where they're, they're much more sedentary than normal because it's cold. And then when those weeks that it's warm, they're moving around. Like I'm still seeing people finding snakes on the South Carolina snake identification group. There's still people posting like stuff's still moving. Someone... In like the beginning of December, local to me, saw an Eastern Diamondback on one of the colder days, and it was, I think, high fifties, low sixties. Wow! So it's like, I just wish I had a better idea of exactly sort of what was what was going on.
0: Yeah, but I think it it goes back to like our, speaking of the the brumation bonanza episode or whatever its name was. Forgive me. You know, Crawdaddy speaks about a corn snake in Virginia or North Carolina is going to hibernate. But a corn snake in Miami is not at all. And they're the same exact species, and they're going to go through the same quote-unquote cycle in one way or another. And we've always, like me and my friends down here, we've always assumed like, okay, when it's chilly, they're chilling. And they're basically sitting back, and they may not be in a hibernative state, but they're sitting back and they're like, man, it is cold. It is wet. I don't want to go out there. I'm just going to wait for it to get a little warmer. I still got some food in me. We're good. And then when they do get that peak, they go out, find a lizard or another snake or, God bless, a rodent. And then another week or four days later, maybe it gets a little chillier. But I think it it all comes down to those regional localities, and they're all still doing the same thing. It's just how are they doing it? You know what I mean?
1: Well, that that's what makes me wonder – sort of the common denominator there is photo period. Does photo period play a much bigger part in triggering things than it's, than it's given credit for? Because that's really the only constant between those. But you it's know, not if we're talking about in corns from Miami to, you know, North Carolina, Virginia, they're going to have shorter days in the winter, just the same.
0: But they're not though. Cause there's access. So like, for example, in, where, right, right now where you are, Justin, what time does it get dark?
1: Uh, probably about six now. It was about five thirty about up until a, you know a couple weeks ago, but now it's starting to get a little okay. longer. Like
3: we're so, past yeah, up here course. today too. So,
0: so this is a little cockamamie <laughs> what I'm about to say, but so because I'm lower than you guys, you know, in terms of you know latitude, the it doesn't it i I get more light than you right and we have daylight savings so we do the clocks forward and backwards and all that crap right which i absolutely hate and because i hate it i never change the clock in my car so my car is either on time or it's an hour slow or however you want to factor it right
1: psychopath
0: and i mean i never look at the damn thing anyway but anyway it it comes down to the snakes, they don't know what daylight savings is. They don't know it's seven o'clock. They just know it's dusk. It's, you know, oh, it's crepuscular time, whatever. Right. But the so, daylight
1: hours are shorter.
0: They're shorter. There are less of them. There there are less of them. But I don't think it plays a role as much by me as it does by you or it does in Virginia or it does in New York where it's getting dark at, you know, four in the afternoon. You so I'm going to throw
3: in another. I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into that, though. Yeah, you're saying okay. Sometimes in Miami, it gets kind of cold and it gets really wet, and everything's going to start hiding. <laughs> by you,
1: crepuscular.
3: Yes, I am. By uh, by you. Naturally, they're going to be going into gopher tortoise burrows when it gets like that. So they're going to be getting some pretty extreme photo period stuff just because they're going deep underground. They're going fifty feet underground. When it starts getting yeah, cold, I, because that's
0: the but, driest but, place. Yeah, but yeah. I've never I've never found a corn snake wow. where there would be gopher burrows. So, so that doesn't mean they're not there. I'm just saying, like, if I'm in the glades and everything is under six inches of water and there's, you know, some higher elevation here and there, there's no, there's no, quote unquote, high sandy elevation. There's no palmetto scrubs. There's no uh, oak hammocks. There's no flag ponds. It's straight up cypress heads and and sawgrass and there's corn snakes there and there's rat snakes there they may go under a rock but they're not going eight to ten feet underground to go for tortoise burrow you see what i'm saying because the the habitat is in in inhabitable is inhabitable no gophers can't live there we'll call it that in yeah, okay maybe i was
3: just making that up so no but i'm mean, well, not really making s- it up but like that's kind no, of, of that that my sense. thought process was yeah. gopher tortoise burrows are so important in the drylands of florida
0: And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a gopher's tortoise burrow that's 10 feet down, or it's a marsh rabbit that's only a foot down or two feet down. It's still, they're still getting more of that darkness. And for species that are highly nocturnal, like a corn snake, it makes sense that they would just wait until either the temperature drops, whether it be a little bit because they're in the burrow, or it's a lot because they're close to the surface, or they notice that the sun is gone or going down or whatever, maybe there's the dew point rises, who, who knows. But I don't think the photo period on a Miami corn in, in the wild plays as great a factor as it does on an Okatee in the wild.
1: Let's see. Iper chimed in. He said day length is irrelevant based on time zones. Day length is based uh, on latitude. It also means the closer to the equator, the shorter the annual change to day length Circadian rhythms and shelter site usage is irrelevant. Uh, one is a conscientious decision. The other is a physical element.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very academic way of what I was trying to say. Thank you, Scott. Love it. But you see what
1: I'm saying as far as like at that being like where it's going to be warmer in Miami than it will be in the, you know, the highlands of North Carolina there's still going to be shorter days in the winter. Like that's going to be the one sort of constant in a roller coaster of temperatures and other variables. Yes. I don't know. I I can, I can, I've wondered about.
0: Yeah. And Ryan Cox asked earlier about just keeping them in total darkness. And I never do that just because I think about, I mean, we can anthropomorphize them as much as we want, but the mental state, man, you know, Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I can, I can give a human three square meals a day with, you know, and keep them in darkness. They're gonna suffer. Like, like we need light. You know, everything needs light. Oh my god, I just touched it and it moved. <laughs> Freeze. Yeah. Right. Don't move. All right. Anyway, it's good. It's good. So yeah, I think that I think that they should have light. I think they should have photo period, even if it is re- reduced on purpose or reduced naturally. Um, I don't know. I haven't bred enough shit. I'll tell you that. I
3: don't know. There's different hormone stuff for different localities. (laughs) I know there was a study a while back on uh, common snapping turtles, where you know they're sex determined uh, by temperature. So there's almost a, I think it was different hormones are used higher in, in higher latitudes and in lower latitudes, because if the same ones were used, then you'd have more. I think. It's more males when it's hot, so you'd have more males in the southern end than in the northern end. So, different localities had different hormones they used to determine who was going to be a boy and who was going to be a girl because you know the ones you use in Miami are not going to be the same ones you use up in Michigan.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting.
1: Iper said within a state like Florida, your change between the border near the Carolinas and Keys is going to be around 15 minutes max. So <clears throat>
0: Okay. That's actually a lot less than I thought. I thought it was going to be more, but it makes sense. And
1: Cox meant just for the <clears throat> brumation period. So I my dad always kept his stuff in the dark for the most part during winter. You know, not only with just the alternative stuff within the recent years, but in the past when we read corns, he kept things darker. I won't say he kept them completely dark all the time. Um, So I've always kind of just done it that way just because that's what I always assumed was the way it was. And
0: it's, it's easy of, too,
2: um,
1: you know, yeah, you're assuming everything's under something, at right. least in cold, like real winters, not the, the southern pseudo winters. Right. Um, so I don't know. I don't I think the lack of food coupled with a lower temperature is sort of the main triggers for them to realize, OK, see, like cooling season is here, like formation time is now. And then, like that's that's the two main factors for me, and I'm I'm sure photo period. Like I said, I I feel like it may play a a more a bigger part in it in general. Not even necessarily brumation, but I feel like photo period is overlooked a lot. Um, Yeah, but so I I, know in
3: poultry science too that photo period is the main thing they use to trigger play. Yeah, so it's very important with birds, which makes me think that it's probably at least fairly important with reptiles. Sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more I think about it, uh, so when I worked for Jay Eaton, you know, he had poof 23 adult breeder female monocle cobras, all different types and such. And Sunset. when I, yeah, I, actually, I don't think they were sunsets, they're mostly, mostly normals and albinos and some, some double monocles. Anyway, so when he would do his cooling, um, It would be they were in three foot vision cages with multiple snakes in each vision. And then everything was stripped out except for uh, like a like a cork round or like one of those half turtle hut things and a water bowl. And then the front glass was covered over with newspaper. And the only light that would get in is from for those of you who aren't aware, three foot visions. They have like a slant in the back with uh, perforated aluminum as like a screen vent. And Mm you would hang your fluorescent lights on the back of that slope. So the only light getting in there was through those little holes. And they were in a warehouse where they had fluorescent lighting. So if we weren't there, the lights weren't on. And they had no reference of sunlight. So does that count as keeping them in the dark the whole time? You know what I mean? Or are they still getting, they still know it's like, because we were there every day anyway, doing some kind of work, Mm -hmm. you know? But at the same time, it was dr- dramatically, dynamically darker when we were cooling them.
1: I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, what kind of uh, that with that species in particular? I I see them being more of a wet and dry season rather than actual temperature season. Yeah, and that, and
0: that was that was the 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 ambient temperature of the room, whatever you know, 78, 80 degrees, whatever the warehouse was. That never changed for them. It's just we removed the basking light, removed the UVB, and that was it. So
1: I feel like Rob Stone and Matt Most are going to message us once they hear this and be like, you guys oh, are idiots. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> and then Stone
1: will just spell it all out for us. It'll be like, of course. That's exactly like, yeah. you know, he's, we got to get him on here again, both of them. Right.
0: I, I feel bad because as much as we love that formation episode, the whole point of this conversation was just talking about what we got going on in terms of temps, <laughs> and it snowballed into, you know, Humidity is
1: a whole nother thing. Jenkins. Brumation
0: light. <laughs> yeah, oh, and of course, Cox, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Wyman is definitely going to give us a dissertation in a few days once he gets a chance to listen to it, and I love it when he does that. It's great. So, But that goes also to one of the reasons why I wanted Casey to come on tonight is Casey and I had a fantastic conversation the other night us just you know BSing on the phone about enclosures and taking the human element out of it as much as humanly possible, pun intended. And before we segue into that, I've really been looking at Applegate enclosures, and not just for my pyros, just for like almost everything. You know what I mean? Especially colubrids. And it doesn't have to be an Applegate enclosure verbatim, but right. I was thinking about when you go to Office Depot and they have those little like micro filing cabinet, little drawer, plastic drawer things that you'd put on your desk and like one's got staples and one's got post-it mm-hmm. notes, you know what I'm talking about? I thought about taking one of those and basically finding a Sterilite tub that would fit, like let's say it's three tier, right? Find a Sterilite tub that would fit the top two, keep the bottom one there, like right, right? So it's like a micro Applegate, aquarium sealing it where it needs to be. So there's essentially just two drawers and a link between them. And then put some kind of, I don't know, like ducking tape or something to ref- reflect that heat upwards. So the bottom stays colder, room temp, whatever. And then the top part has the heating element and basically make like a pseudo micro plastic Applegate enclosure.
1: Like one of those giant hamster uh,
0: utopia things. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah, <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, if only they weren't so ventilated, right?
1: And you know what the irony of that is? Is like the Applegate stuff, those aren't a new thing. But as much as people talk about enrichment and how you need to be doing all these different things, it seems to me that no one stopped and said, how come we aren't doing stuff like the Applegate enclosures? Because that's like the epitome of like, you're getting the caging that you want. But you're also filling all those needs or, you know, at least a, a very large majority of those needs that that animal will, will take advantage of. Sure. <clears throat> with the different, you know, parameters of each section. And um, I, Casey dropped out, so he'll be back. Yeah,
2: yeah, I'm sure he will. Um,
1: Iper said photo period should be classified based on latitude, i.e. tropical and a 12-12 year-round temperature or temperate a 14-10 to 10-14. That's hours, uh, hour long days and cool temper, uh, cool temper at 16, eight to 18, eight, 16. Good Lord. And humidity isn't an entirely another beast in itself. Cause even in the winter down here, it's, it's considerably more humid than a lot of other places.
0: Good lord! Sorry, though my windproof lighter was not windproof.
1: <laughs> KZ, Raul,
0: is he giving us his his Zoolander? Did everybody drop yeah, or it? Was it, just me? You did. No, it's just you.
1: His his blue steel Latigra mm-hmm. Magnum. <laughs>
2: I saw. Yeah, side, did side everybody note. drop it? was
1: it just me no it was just you
0: okay cool I, I think he, he's still delayed
1: he is a little bit but there was this meme I saw it it was remember Zoolander did the calendar and it was the same face just different colored shirts right. someone did put that and they like it was all the Glock generations
0: <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> maybe laugh that's good pretty good. That's good. and uh, Billy Jenkins I'll send you some applicant closure pictures uh, off air
1: can you explain it? Paint them a picture exactly of... of
0: yeah, I, yeah. I can't I, um,
1: describe it as, as well as, as you have in the past. But
0: So, I had no idea what the hell this was, and I heard all these people that we all look up to and respect, especially in the King Snake world, and essentially, Applegate realized that these animals were heavily subterranean, despite them being a king snake. You know what I mean? This is not some kind of worm snake that only lives underground. It's not my that only lives underground only comes above the ground to you know, feed and then go back underground. They they live in these nooks and crannies of these rock crevices and creek beds and, and escarpments. So what Applegate did was he basically made a enclosure where the top of the enclosure looked like a normal enclosure. It would open however it opened. You had a heat lamp. You had, you know, UV if you wanted it, water bowl, uh, multiple hides. Maybe there were some elevated platforms, you know, and then at the bottom on the substrate layer, there was some kind of opening to another chamber below the enclosure that was basically an underground, quote unquote, subterranean enclosure that had no light, no heat, Um, There may have been a water bowl down there. There may have been a humid hide in there with sphagnum moss or wet paper towels or whatever you use to generate humidity. And now you've created the microclimate underneath the the primary, you know, habitat. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing wasn't that bottom, you know, underground cave was a drawer like your dresser and you could slide it out and remove eggs, change the substrate, whatever, and then if you had to clean the top cage, you just open like normal and clean the top cage like normal. So now you basically could allow the animal to go underground, so to speak, when it wanted to and then come above ground when it wanted to. Now you can do a rain season. You could do a cold weather climate where the top is really cold and the bottom is not so cold. Kind of like we talked about, like the hibernaculum type stuff. And they
1: there like varying humidity levels, too, between them all?
0: Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure... Uh, Chris's friend John was saying that each corner of the cage would not only have a different temperature, but have a different humidity. So, it, depending on the size of the cage, of course, you know, I mean, if you're doing it in a in a twenty long, it ain't going to work too well, you know. But depending on the type of cage, and then certain materials that you use that would hold humidity better, i.e., acrylic or you know, uh, beech wood or teak wood or whatever. You know, and, and that's the that's the concept. And, and forgive me if I'm butchering the actual Applegate design, but the concept is is having a primary habitat above a microclimate cave or a microclimate, mm-hmm. you know, den. And, and that that's what all the the great pyro guys do. And the Leonis guys do, and the the Western style, the Western milk snake species. That that's what they do, and it works like a million bucks. For
1: yeah, them. I mean that's about as close as you're going to get to sort of those those little areas within rock piles and and things, uh, you know, like the cuts and stuff that we even saw in Texas. And I don't think you're going to get any closer than, than a setup like that.
0: Yeah, I even uh I, I was actually talking to my my coworker. He's uh, he's re- getting really big into do it yourself cage stuff and we were talking about how you'd have to get a big enough exo but in theory you could have an exoterra whether it be on a island in your home where you can access the back and the front or you have it on like a lazy susan and you could spin it around but you could basically have one side be the outside wall of a cut or an escarpment and then in the cracks and fissures of the wall mm-hmm It's a gateway to the other side where there's no light and high humidity. And it's like the inner cave dwelling of of the rock escarpment. But it's all, you know, foam and (laughs) grout.
1: Michael Gillen said, great for Pichuovas. I'm sure Subox would benefit from the Applegate design too, which I I have no doubt Subox would be all about it.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And Scott said, those enclosures have been used in Australia and Europe for three plus decades, which doesn't surprise me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if those people talked to Applegate 30 years ago, you know? So or maybe he stole it from the Aussies, who knows?
1: Dragon Lair said my MBK has the type of has that type of caging and he stays in the bottom ninety eight percent of the time, comes out as soon as the UV light comes on for about fifteen minutes every couple of days.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting because like I have Mexican Black Kings and I have them on Aspen and it's funny how they avoid the heat as if it's too hot for them, but it's not that it's too hot for them. It's that they pushed all the Aspen to the cold side so they can sprawl out on the warmth <laughs> and then they go and hide in mm-hmm. what their their best attempt at being subterranean under the Aspen on the cold side. Because I would always check my thermoses, and be like, "Oh man, is my rack too hot?" You know, and I look, and it's like, "No, these temperatures are perfect." What the hell are they doing? And then you you start yeah. to look at the signs. I've had some porns do that. Yeah, they, they just move everything out of the yeah. way. They get warm, and then they go and hide. So
1: it's actually the opposite. Usually, the they push the substrate more to the back, and I just I just leave it. You know, it's whatever. Yeah, let them do. Scott the thing. said he tried those cages and he got rid of them. So yeah, isn't Wheeler's doing something like that with a scrub? Isn't he or some carpets? where he has like two PVC cages on top of each other, and he's got some sort of coupling between the two.
0: Uh, I'm unfamiliar with it.
1: I thought he
3: was
0: that's doing That's what uh, like that.
1: Lawrence did with his scrubs.
3: Okay. Where he That'd be good have, for uh, Solo.
1: Chance and I would be all yeah. about that.
3: So he'd watch the males, and like once the males <laughs> started cruising back and forth across the the door to the female's cage, he would open it up. And that's kind of what he would use as a cue to say, okay, the the male and the female are kind of both ready to go right now.
2: Super cool, man.
1: Cox said blink twice if you're being held hostage, Casey.
0: (laughs) Baxter, bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. (laughs) Bark twice if you're in Milwaukee.
1: Brandon did that for uh, for, for bleeding. Brandon did that for breeding. Cool. Someone said so. Very cool. Which, again, that seems to work well for species like
3: scrubs that Mm -hmm. do a whole lot better if you don't touch them or mess with them or anything like that. You kind of just watch the cues and don't even try to pull the boy out or pull the girl out anywhere and try to get them together. Just, you know, have a door there, see that he's scratching his face up against that door to try to get in, open it up, let them do their thing, let them separate whenever they want to separate. So for species like
1: that, it seems to work uh, really well. Maybe that is what I'll do with the Jansen. I though just get another one of those XT fours from Black Box, just like put a circle, like a, a tunnel, a, you know, cut a circle between yeah, the yeah. two a doorknob cutter
2: something like and, that,
1: and, and they can have a top and a lower, and make the top one hot warmer, bottom one cooler. You know, more UV in the top one. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be very cool you have to talk to Jen about that.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Or even just, I, I've seen so many people not, so so many people, they, they want to do something similar to that, and they don't realize that, in theory, you can do all that in one enclosure. So let's say we're using a PVC enclosure. You can pop the glass panels off the PVC enclosure, assuming it's a slider, right?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: And you can make a hide box that, covers the majority of the floor of that enclosure texture the top of it maybe even pour dirt on top of it mm-hmm. and there you go you, you essentially have it you know what i mean and it, yeah it's, it's a cage inside a cage so to speak or, or or a dwelling inside a dwelling but it's doable you don't have to have two pvc enclosures per se but if you wanted to try something like that i don't see why that wouldn't work at least a little bit you know, providing yeah, the, the, but I mean, I, I feather the temperatures.
1: I say Jance and I in particular, because I mean, those are those are big snakes, and they yeah. you know they they take advantage of space if you give it to them. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah I'm noticing that now with the indigos is that I have to find some kind of enrichment for them because they're at the size now where realistically they should have a bigger enclosure, but I don't have the space or the money right now to be brutally honest to upgrade them, and they would be fine for the rest of their lives in the enclosures they're at. But now they're getting curious and they're starting to poke. Why don't you give them like a,
1: like a dig box like I give the Ackies?
0: So, well, that was that was an idea too. Um, and basically what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to I'm start to add in periodically uh, different cork tubes and extra hide boxes and keep it strictly for that exact animal so it starts to smell like them. And then as what I can do is maybe every other month or every month change those things out. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're curious about it. They're going to investigate it. They, maybe it smells like them. Maybe it doesn't, maybe I can hide food in there too. And just kind of play those games with them to kind of keep their mind off of the fact that they're doing laps like a tiger at the zoo. You know what I mean? Right. So at least that was my thought process. So we'll see how it goes
1: that's one of the things that p and cody do that i do like is you know them going out and trimming branches from the you know the oaks and stuff in their their yard and yeah putting those in cages and watching the snakes you know go and actually sort of investigate and
0: yeah uh, do the gaboon viper going all the way to the top of the enclosure (laughs) and and going five feet up you know what i mean like
1: That's weird. It's like watching the Salcotta swim, man. It's just it doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. it feels it feels wrong. It makes makes me uncomfortable. It's not normal.
0: So on this note, Casey, is this an appropriate segue to go back to the conversation we were talking about the other day?
3: Yeah, of course. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into it.
0: So, Casey and I were talking about how uh, this year we him and I decided to dive into multitude of projects that we had wanted to do for some time and thought that we, and again, I'm not speaking for Casey, but thought that we knew what we were doing and it comes to find out that we do, but the way we didn't, didn't exactly pan out that we wanted it to in terms of caging and husbandry and stuff. So we start talking about, you know, what would be ideal? What would be perfect? You know, if, if you had unlimited money and limited space what would you have done differently? How would you have done it? And that segued into the human element in terms of people keeping unique species like bolins and, you know, scrubs and some of these rarer lizards that, you know, like sungazers and whatever else, that the human element is clearly what's messing them up to some degree. And we wanted to talk and, and kind of go around and, and see why people haven't tried eliminating the human element more. You know, why are we constantly going in the enclosure and messing with them and taking them out and playing with them and all that? Well, it's because we love them and we want to, but if someone really like we'll use Bolens for example, and I've never owned Bolins, I've never worked with Bolins, shy of me going, wow, this is really cool. And handing it back to someone. That's the extent of Bolins I have. And I'm no one to talk. But just thinking outside the box, how come no one's made a room-sized enclosure for one animal and limited the human element to the best of their ability? And by that, I mean one-way glass, animal can't see out, human can see in. Um, Minimal interaction? Minimal interaction, only going in the cage when the animal's in its hide box and you've used a robotic arm or a hook or something to close the door. So now the animal's trapped in the box and can't see the human. Uh, food is not thrown in by hand or placed in with tweezers or hemostats. Food is put in via uh, a mechanical arm or a robot or like whatever. Like things yeah. in prison where you open the door, slide the tray in, and close it <laughs> again. I I mean, handle for, li- for lack of a better word, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and I'm thinking that I wonder if that would actually help or it wouldn't. I mean, Casey, am I, am I missing something? No, Can I mean, I
3: you? do think as keepers... We really underestimate that in our room, we are the most unnatural element in the reptile world or in the reptile room. Yeah. You know, as keepers, we are the main source of stress sure. for these things. And I wonder that, too, with nest boxes where I mean, I know I do it whenever I've got things that are wanting to lay eggs or wanting to kind of start sniffing around. I'll like open the nest box and like, oh, let's see what's going on. Like, I might not touch anything, but the act of like, oh, let me check to see what this female's doing or something like that. That has to be. Incredibly stressful because, from her, you know, from her perspective, I'm a predator. Something's yeah. come in and messed. I want to them. take the eggs. Yeah. So
1: something's been here and has has rearranged. Right. Things. Right.
0: You know, and, and I, I told Casey about when when Marcus had the girdle tail or excuse me the sun gazers at the museum, and he got one way glass, and when we walked into the room where their enclosure was. They knew who we were. They knew we were going to feed them. They were, they were, they knew we weren't a threat. And they would sit there and they would watch us and they would turn their head. And if they, if you got too close, they would, they would kind of do one of these real quick, you know, where they kind of like lean to the side, like, are you going to pick me up, human? And then you picked them up and they were a bearded dragon at that point. But when they went in the burrow, you could tell they were completely relaxed they were completely at ease they they licked each other they looked at each other they would sit on top of each other and we would observe this through this one way glass and we had a little red led or little red you know halogen bulb in there just to give them a little warmth and at the same time we could see what's going on you know and it was just it was a different animal in that burrow it was and it wasn't even that big a burrow but they knew that they were safe and away from us and away from you know, a secretary bird that was going to eat them. You know what I mean? And why aren't we doing more of that? You know what I mean?
3: I mean, a lot of it is the control factor. And too, we talked about this, especially with lizards. Like, you know, from your perspective, the nephros geckos and mine, the, the blue tongues. Right. Is How unnatural is it for these animals to actually live solitary lives? Like, yes. You said nephros geckos go out, they go like a hundred meters a night or something like that, right? Yeah, that's my, my friend Ellie. Other nephros geckos every single night. Yeah,
0: you know, it may or, be or like, other little, like I'm
3: gonna go, you know, lick your tail or I'm gonna do a little threat display and get you to run away, but there has to be some kind of hierarchy or something like that, because we see hierarchies being built up in almost every you know, at least most of the lizards I've seen. So Just this whole idea of okay, these lizards are being kept in solitary confinement in these small little tubs. Yeah, that has to be that has to be very unnatural for them. Yeah. So I don't know. And again, like I've seen what the Australians do with their blue-tongue skinks, they seem to have really consistent success with keeping them in very big outdoor pits where You know, they say, oh, they don't work in the United States. And I don't know if I want to, like, call call bullshit on that. But, like, I don't see why it wouldn't work for at least most of the year.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You
3: know? And you got to let them kind of pick out their own little hierarchies and pick out, like, okay, this is when I'm ready to go. And I'm going to chase this mail off. But, you know, you can't leave them together for six or seven hours here in the States because we're trying to keep them in, like, little four by two enclosures right. and if the female is trying to chase the male off and he can't leave or from her perspective refuses to leave, she's going to rip his arm off. Right. You know, versus in the wild where he can just run away and go behind a spin effects bush or
0: whatever. Right. That's, and then that, no. that's the same thing too, is with tubs and racks and glass enclosures or glass front enclosures just because the human isn't there, you think the animals in those enclosures aren't watching the other animals in that room? They sure as hell can smell them. So even that on itself, so like going back to a, a very a very difficult species like the Bolens, you would almost have to do a segregated room for those one or two specific individual specimens because I've walked into my room and all of a sudden, I hear dink, 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 dink. And it's snakes striking the glass at each other. It's not even me. Like, they haven't, I haven't walked in the room that far for them to see me. But I guess when I flip the lights on, one of them stood up, or one of them s'd up. And then the other one saw that one. And now they're binking the glass at each other. And it's like, well, that's got to be happening when I'm not there as well. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. And I imagine it would be. So. Yeah. I don't know. I I also don't think reptiles are quite as solitary as people think right now. I think right. that's kind of been... Sh- I mean, how many times have you flicked a log over and saw, like, two different species of rat snake or... Sure. Like, a copperhead and a uh, corn snake or something like that under the same big piece of tin? Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. So, I don't know. And I know that, like, as keepers, we're probably not going to convert rooms in our houses into... Uh, right, right. Like single animal things. But there are keepers that do that right now. I mean, we saw that one girl that has the, the Emerald Tree Boa room where she's got like seven Emerald Tree Bows in there that are kind of able to just uh, go off and do whatever they want to do. And yeah. I wonder how much success she's going to have in there because, like, if they want to get away from each other, they're fully capable of getting away from each other in that room, which is yeah. kind of the biggest problem with cohabbing. In my opinion, other sure. than you know, accidentally having one bite the other when you're trying to feed.
0: Yeah, so. they can't they can't get away from each other because they, they don't have the space to do it, you know. And I also that that goes to like I don't know anything about beta fish, but male beta fish obviously kill each other. That's why they're called you know Siamese or Japanese fighting fish, right? Because they fight to the death. But if I have a large enough tank with several hiding spots and i put five beta males in there together beta fish males together there's a high probability that they're going to each have their own respective and there might be some skirmishes there might be some some you know some some fighting to a degree but they're not just going to murder each other like they would if i put them in a fishbowl they're going to have their own respective cubbies and they're going to live normally so are we giving them those options despite not having the space or is it irrelevant because they're individually contained on their own regardless?
3: I don't know. Uh, going to the beta thing, I do know if they've done studies where they released two into a lake and they actually did fight to the death. Really? Well, like, you got to think about it. This t- I do wonder if that's like a hierarchy thing where they're both in new territory. So like, okay, we're going to fight over this territory where, like you said, if maybe if we had like little dividers up in the big tank and then we released it slowly and like, one beta fish on one side, one beta fish in the other, and it's like a 20 foot long aquarium. It'd probably be fine because, I mean, they can't all kill each other
0: in the wild. Yeah, that's true. And I just remember, I just remember us when I worked at Pet Supermarket, we had a, a, like a perfect cube tank and somebody like gave it to us or whatever. And one of the guys, one of the managers was like, Hey, we got these new floating fake plants. Let's put a bunch of them in there, and then we'll put a bunch of betas in there, and each beta is going to have its own little floating plant. And sure as hell, the guy was right. I think we put five betas in there, and there was like six or seven floating fake plastic plants, and each one hung out under its respective plant. Now, when we were gone, I don't know what happened, but to the best of my knowledge, they never they never messed with each other. Maybe that's because it's, it's – maybe they were acclimated and I didn't see it. Maybe it's because of how much we were feeding them. Who knows? So I, I don't know. There you go. Dragon Lair says I've kept as many as five male betas in a fully planted twenty long tank with no fighting. So who knows? But I just I I feel like we're we're getting a little departure there. I, I, the whole point of the conversation was, <clears throat> excuse me, if are we doing our best? On these very difficult or unique species are we doing our best to eliminate the human element and if we're not does it really even matter you know what i mean and i feel like it would take someone with uh, with a 30 by 20 room and two bolens and copious amounts of funding for you know decor live plants whatever to really test something like that but I don't think it needs to be that grandiose. Am I talking in circles? No, I don't think so. Um,
3: I don't, but I do think the, I don't know, the real, the the social hierarchy thing was just kind of us talking about. that. I think it really goes back to removing the human element to it is the way more important part of it than like right. oh what happens if we put in like five of them and see what happens? I'm sure they'd like figure out something like that but uh yeah And
0: just going back to the whole flipping the tin thing like you flip the tin and there's a copperhead and a corn snake and they're equal size and they're not necessarily laying on top of each other they're at different ends of the tin but they have to know each other there and it's almost like hey man this is a great spot i'll let you have your side i'll have my side let's just not mess with each other you know what i mean
3: yeah and i mean going back to the whole like the the nephros gecko um, example, it wasn't like, oh, they're going to go hang out with each other. It's just in captivity, your nephros geckos may not see each other for like three months, right? Sure. sure. Whenever you introduce them, like how often would they really go without seeing one another? And it may just be like a quick little like, oh, I'm going to look at you. You're over there. We're both going to run away from each other because, you know, I don't know if you're going to hurt me or not, but it does seem like a it does seem like they'd be interacting with each other a lot more in the wild when they have that much more space to kind of figure out what they want to do versus in captivity where we're kind of artificially you know keeping them away from each other
0: right right and I mean it's just to, to dive in that more if you have a an eight by ten you know rectangle of spinifix grass right and that's one dude Right in this big, massive bush of spinifex, there's going to be multiple geckos living in there. There's going to be multiple gecko species living in there, whether it's, you know, Strophorus or Nephrus or, you know, uh, Detellas, whatever. They're going to interact with each other to some degree, but let's specifically focus on Nephrus and say, okay, one Nephrus sees a spider and it starts to stalk it and it gets within strike range. And right before it dives on that spider, Another gecko was doing the another Nefers was doing the exact same thing, and they now they're not looking at the spider per se. They're looking at each other, and maybe they go, "Hey man, what are you doing?" Well, I don't know. I saw the spider first, you know. And again, we're anthropomorphizing here, but whether they whether one eats the spider or not, at the end of the day, they're not going to duke it out. They're just going to go their separate ways, and they're still going to live their life like normal. However, I feel like if both geckos we're doing that exact same scenario, and I walked up with a flashlight, they're both going to go, holy crap, and they're going to haul ass back in the spin effects, and they may not come out for a day or two or longer. So I feel like that... I'd hide from you. You would. You would hide from me. Um, I just feel like that human element just plays way more of a factor than we really think.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you got to think the whole, like even if you have a hide under your enclosure, how often are you checking it? How often are you cleaning the poop out of it or something like that? Right. So if you had an outdoor pit and you had like a simulated gopher tortoise burrow or just a gopher tortoise burrow because you had a gopher tortoise. Sure. How tempted would you be to like find some way to reach in there and try to clean it out or, you know, disturb it in some way versus, you know, just letting the gopher tortoise burrow do its thing and somehow bring in some dung beetles or whatever it is that cleans them out. I don't know. There just seems like, you know, I know I would do it. So I'm assuming a lot of other keepers would do it. There's probably keepers way better than me that would learn how to just leave stuff alone. But (laughs) you know, I know with me, I'm like, I'm curious. I want to know what's going on down in there. So my curiosity is definitely going to be messing up some natural process of those animals.
0: Yeah. I've even thought about uh, on some of the bigger species that wouldn't be able to escape, drilling a pilot hole into the front of an enclosure and then buying one of those like cell phone endoscopes so i can like slide in this cell phone endoscope this wire right in that pilot hole and just look around and that way you know all they see is this little black wire and they be like what the hell is that little black wire and it's not me opening the container and lifting up the high box and all of a sudden there's this giant eclipse of light and this giant you know Hairless monkey going, Oh, you're not breeding, damn it. You know what I mean? I, I, I do wish it. we had
1: cameras like the wise cameras that were small and could fit into in a corner of a cage and not have to worry about it being ripped off by something roaming. Or,
0: yeah, you know, it'd be great if we had a yeah. well, it's like at underground when, when, we were, when we were pairing the uh, the black and white spitters, uh, we had got um, a nest camera on a magnet. And what you do is it comes with like a lot of these like adhesive metal plates and you just put a metal plate in each vision cage, right. Or each PVC enclosure. And then that week, if you're pairing something, you stick the, the nest camera on there, it's Wi-Fi, right. And there's, there's Wi-Fi in the building. So it's just going to route to it, you know, and then you can take the magnet off and move it around. The problem is, is that the camera's so big, like you were just saying, Justin, that when the Cobras were getting all funky with each other, they'd knock the damn thing over and yep. it would be staring at mulch for, you know, 18 hours. <laughs> yeah, it totally defeats the purpose. So. The,
1: I mean, I, I keep going back to the and eye, cause that's sort of the only species I have that sort of fits this, this sort of bill in terms of trying to figure out how to get them to make more of themselves. <laughs> um, and I mean, they, they unplug the heat panel all the time, you know, and it's like, I can't put a camera in there cause they'll, it'll be torn off in, you know, two days. Yeah. So. I just wish there was like a a minimal version of one of those cameras where it's like I don't doesn't have to be any like super high you know 12k bitrate or anything like that I just want something that I can check and see what's going on have a clear clear-ish picture of what's happening and it not take up a ton of space
0: yeah I feel like there's so many small cameras for that are that are like nanny cams yeah. that go into a light socket or these little tiny spy cameras that they put you know in a, a, a a desk clock or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised no one's made something that obviously doesn't have to be secret. It doesn't, you're not, it's not your nanny right. cam. You're not hiding it in the eyeball of a teddy bear on the mantelsill but something that that's maybe like govy sized that yeah. is stickable or magnetic or whatever. And that way it can transmit and you can see, and it's not overly invasive in the enclosure. Um, Scott's mentioning about, you know, habitat partitioning and, He's got a very valid, great point um, in talking about certain species partitioning habitat. But also, I can't remember the term. And Scott, if you remember, let me know. But there's a term for a species that fills its niche. And because it specifically fills that niche, no other subspecies or rival species in that genus inhabits that area because it, it because it it has its own purpose there right and i don't think that that plays a factor in the disturbing the peace that we're talking about does that make sense so yeah, I just think that we need to start thinking more about – with these with these more difficult species, we need to start thinking more about how we're going to limit human exposure to, to keep the animals stress-free in an assumption that the majority of our husbandry or breeding issues with that difficult species is because of the human element.
1: I think it's that and also figuring out what we're – like what's missing – you know, what are we, this is what I think, you know, Boland's come to mind when I, when I think about this, you know, what is it that, that we just, we're not offering or can't offer that is obviously a missing, a big, big piece of the, of the puzzle that's missing, you know, that, that for whatever reason, no one can seem to to pinpoint <clears throat>
3: But I do wonder with something like Boland's, maybe it is just a nest box that no one... A really secure, comfortable nest box that is never messed with by a human being. Like, maybe just the act of checking on that female Boland's, like, every couple weeks, every couple months inside of that nest box is enough for her to realize, hey, this isn't safe for me to lay my eggs. There's a predator Mm -hmm. nearby. Even if, you know, we say, oh, our animals know us, they blah, 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 blah. Like, how much do they really... And how much does that mentality change when they're inside that nest box? You know, because you got to think something like a Bolin's. They're from such an extreme environment where if there is anything that makes that female think, hey, I will not be able to take my eggs, you know, all the way to live offspring. I'm just not going to waste that life force because I will die and my eggs will die. And every like the future of my species will die. So I do wonder if a big part of Bolin's issues is you're messing with the nest box too much you know you're not providing a consistent solid nest box that is what the female wants and even if you are you're constantly opening up the latch or like constantly pulling the drawer out just to like look at her so especially especially if she's in it yeah Yeah, is what i'm wondering
0: i think going on that same notion uh you look at people that have bred King Cobras in very large enclosures, they provide them with a multitude of different leaf litters for mom to make the nest. So why speaking of the bowlers again, maybe people have done this and I just, I don't know because I'm not in that circle, but are people giving them multiple opportunities for a nesting spot, but at the same time, giving them multiple options to choose from in terms of nest construction? You know I mean? We give, a corn mm-hmm. snake, uh, uh, you know, wet sand and sphagnum moss because it's easy and th- we know they're going to like it. But, same, you know, I, I give, you know, leopard geckos, you know, m- a thing of moist sand and they just know, okay, this is perfect. I'm going to bury my eggs in there. Bowens is probably not the case. So if you had a large enough enclosure and you gave them a diversity of options for nesting materials, would that help as well? because if if you know Casey's from Atlanta Bolins and I'm from Savannah Bolins and Justin's from Beaufort Bolins, well Casey's got pine needles and you know I've got cypress leaves and Justin's got palm fronds you know palmetto fronds well we're all the same animal we're all making the same nest but I prefer my leaves and Justin prefers his and Casey prefers his so how do we know which animal is going to prefer which bedding or nesting material? You know what I mean.
3: Well, I mean I can't get too much into the the Canova plan for the the new enclosure, but that's definitely a uh, a very large part of it is filling the entire bottom up with just different nest sites and different options. You know, some of them are heated, some of them are filled to the brim with sphagnum moss that's just loose enough for them to get in. Some are you know, full of hay. Some of them have just a little bit of sphagnum moss are, and cypress mulch mixed in. So there is, in the plan that I am helping out with currently, that's kind of the idea, along with a cooling system. And I don't necessarily know if, you know, UV is important to reptiles. I think that we're, we're discovering that more and more. But I also think that full-spectrum lighting may you know cycling with full spectrum lighting may be important and actually learning how to do that where you're not just flipping the switch on flipping the switch off it's okay well the blue light comes on at this time and then turns off at this time and the red light comes on like there's actual you know cycles daily Mm -hmm. that go on with uh the different colors that are being shown
0: right that goes to like you look at some of the coral reef people and they have these, you know, Odyssey lights that th- the lights dim and fade and certain spectrums are brought out at certain times of the year. You know, and they have these these LED lights that are cycled to the moon phases. So depending on, you know, is it waxing? Is it waning? Whatever. We need to start doing some of that stuff with some of the more trickier species as well. Just going on that whole light thing, because. You may have everything perfect, but you're just missing that one little magic touch. And I mean, maybe the coral reef people, they do it for aesthetics. You know, who knows? Oh, I like it because it's cool. It's a full moon outside, so it's a full moon in my coral reef in my living room. Or maybe it's because of coral propagation and anemone growth and, you know, Nemo looks cuter. Who knows? But I really think that we need to focus on more things like that in terms of making it as natural as we can because most of us have a lot of them and we're lazy and want to just you know crumple up the newspaper and wipe down the tub
2: you know
3: well i think you have to remember too you can definitely overcomplicate this you can add way too many elements that are sure that are not needed to something like this um yeah i do know that there are some scrub guys that have had really good luck with scrubs just keeping them in pretty simplistic enclosures near a window not directly against a window but they can see the natural light cycle they can kind of get that idea of okay this is what the year is doing um it's starting to go from like 13 hours of light to eight hours of light and even if it doesn't do that in the wild you're still triggering some hormonal changes and the animals are seeing that um, you, even
0: if they see the seasons change themselves, you know, they see the leaves change color, they see the green come back, whatever it may be, you know.
3: Barometric pressure shifts. I mean, if oh, a yeah. fall day feels completely different than a summer day, even if it's the same temperature. Yeah. That's true. But I do think with Bolands, too, um, I think overbasking is a very large part of it. Uh, you look at pro exotic, pro exotic, they would ultrasound their bolens pythons every single year and they would consistently do the same thing which is they would breed they would build their follicles they would grow them just like every other python and then when they would reach just at or just be, just before 40 millimeters they would reabsorb any other species of python is going to lay something with a 40 millimeter follicle yeah Bolands are just so specialized to such a harsh environment where, if the female does not feel completely, yeah, you know, we're anthropomorphizing here. This is not sure. really what happens, but we're going to anthropomorphize. Yeah. If the female's not completely comfortable with her ability to hatch babies and have those babies live, she's not going to waste that life force. Yeah. And nature has given them the ability to shut mm-hmm. off that process at any point. Yeah. So, well put. And I think, uh, I think some of the other scrub species can do that. I think Malucans are able to reabsorb that fast too. But I think a big thing with Bolans is they are so built to absorb heat that giving them eight to 12 hour basking spots every single day is allowing that female just to sit up there and coil and absorb all that heat and just bake those huge follicles and just let them die. Uh, you know, whatever it is you want to call it, but I think changing it up so they can only have a few hours of basking every other day, maybe every third day would even be more natural because you look at their environment where it, you know, it rains all the time. So you're not going to have access to basking. And if you're on a mountain, um, you know, say this is a mountain face with it's right. a little hard, but the sun coming up here, you can see it. Once the sun is on the other side of the mountain, you have a shadow cast. Yeah, you don't really have the opportunity to have 12 hours of direct sunlight, even if there's no clouds, because the sun is going to go over the side of the mountain and cast a shadow.
0: Right. Yeah. Like they know it's daytime per se, but they're not getting actual sunlight. (laughs) And and even like we we see pictures where I mean, how many pictures of that part of the island do we see when it's not overcast? Oh, it's almost always raining. That's because, I mean, it's not yeah, just the
3: Bolin's guys that go up there. There's also like the Nepenthes pitcher plant guys that love to go up and explore because it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then you talk to the people that grow the Nepenthes Maxima, which grow in the exact same place. I've asked Ari to send me pictures of the pitcher plants that live up there. And uh, you know Travis Wyman and I kind of asked around a couple groups like, hey, tell us exactly what these are. And they told us what they were and how to take care of them. And it's pretty consistently, hey, you give them 70 degrees during the day and 50 degrees at night. Every single night. There's no seasons.
0: Right. And no
3: light? No, no, no. They get light. Okay. Yeah. It's just, but you also have to remember the Bolans aren't out when it's like pouring down rain. It's 50 degrees. They're going into little couscous burrows and they're hiding. Sure. So I think they have a very temperature stable environment microclimate they can go into when it's bad outside. And then every, every other day, every third day, they go out for about four hours and just soak up as much heat as possible, maybe go out and hunt a little bit. Who knows? You know maybe on clear rainy nights they are clear, uh, clear rainless nights, they go out and hunt. I don't really know, but I do think that they are built to absorb as much heat as possible when it's available and it's very similar to humans where you know we're kind of built to eat as much sugar and salt as possible because it's rarely available in the african savannah so now that we've made our world where you can have salt and sugar whenever you want you know we've got a bunch of people that are addicted to french fries and ice cream pretty good stuff
0: yeah yeah and uh, here's another thing too is you know, just talking about the Bolans and the couscous burrows. So we look at certain fossorial species that, you know, they smell the rain, like coral snakes, for example, The I've never found one in the wild. But for my friends that have, if it just rained and it's like 30, 40, maybe an hour after it rained, that's when they find corals for the most part, because the coral can smell the rain. It can feel the moisture in the air and it knows, okay, the world is wet. I can come out, frogs are going to be moving, snakes are going to be moving, You know, invertebrates are going to be moving, now's my time to go do what i got to do before i got to go back underground. You look at a Bolin's that's living in a couscous burrow or a rottened-out log, they have heat pits that are seeing this radiation. And it wouldn't shock me if they're using the heat pits not for temperature, but just for witnessing those radioactive waves and knowing okay the lights come the right lights coming through i need to go outside and get some of that but in captivity the right light's always there so why would i want to leave you know yeah so i I don't even know if it's necessarily a temperature thing of of you know you you said basking and i I knew what you mean but i'm wondering if it's really not basking if it's them saying hey this is the right kind of light and i i like you said with the sugar right sugar and salt Maybe that radiation or those that right type of light is their sugar and salt. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I still think temperature has to have something to do with it because they're from a place that it gets cold every night. They don't yeah. have warm summer nights like we do, or like a corn snake does, or you know, like a diamond python does in uh, New South Wales. It's like sixty to forty degrees every night in that environment. It's such a strange place because, you know, it's, it's equatorial mountains. You don't, you don't really have people living on equatorial mountains that we can, well, I mean, people do, but there's not really like common places we can think of where, Hey, it's warm every day that the sun's out. And from what I've been told, it's like the most intense UV in the world because you're up on high elevation on the equator. So it's like, blazing hot and just burning right through your clothes when the sun's out and then it's like almost frost every single night wow it's like a desert and a little bit but it's wet so yeah it's it's kind of this weird thing where like when the cloud cover comes over it gets you know kind of kind of chilly so they're probably going and hiding but when they're coming out they're just exposed to this crazy intense uv light so I don't even know what's really that that it gets super hot for their basking. It's just there's gotta be something to do with that light too. I feel like I started rambling there a little. I'm sorry, I got a little no, distracted no. The, I'm, by the I'm, chat. I'm, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to read the chat and <laughs> and talk at the same time. I just need to to take it away.
0: Well, it's funny because they're they're bouncing <laughs> back and forth between crocodile monitors and juicy crunchy fries. So but, but yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, man. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that, I mean, we're all on the same page, and I mean, we're talking about an animal that's very unobtainable for most people, and the people that are working with them are doing a damn good job. Um, I just feel like, guys like us, we want to, we want to give our two cents, and at the same time, we want to see them succeed. You know, I want to see them succeed, so, for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, you know.
1: I'm much more interested I mean, I look in at it from somebody eggs from these Janssen and I, damn it.
3: <laughs> you know, I love cold weather pythons. That's like my main interest is cold weather boids. So anything that's when you start describing, oh, you know, they drop down to like just above frost sometimes. And they're able to take down something the size of a small cat. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like that shouldn't yeah. exist. That's kind of why I like them. They're an animal that shouldn't be real.
0: Yeah, they, they go against everything that we've been taught and everything we've been shown and led to believe, so to speak, you know.
3: Yeah. And I mean diamonds are kind of the same way, but diamonds are at least an area where you know we can understand them because it is a seasonal, you know, sure subtropical, temperate environment where humans live pretty well too.
0: Right. Although it's not the norm, it's still understandable how they're doing a good job at surviving.
3: Yes, this is a place that, for lack of better words, doesn't have seasons. Like it does a little bit. Like I think there's a slight wet and dry season, but I don't think it's as I don't think there's really pronounced seasons the way we would like to think of a place like that having.
0: It's it's wetter and drier. It's not wet and dry. Yeah.
3: But even looking at the crocodile monitor stuff on here, that's where you know people had problems breeding crocodile monitors and having some of these large monitor species is if the female does not have a nest site that is perfect, more than likely she's either going to scatter them all over the place and eat them, or she's not going to lay them at all. Yeah. You know, you talk to some of the old school monitor guys, and they're like, oh, well, if you give them the what is it with the crop monitor the, the trash can that's just full of mulch and let them dig down into it yeah
0: yeah that's brilliant and yeah and and they figured out, oh puts... well, we'll
3: get eggs all the time if we have this but if we don't have that they won't lay
0: yeah exactly and you walk in a room and like you said you find eggs scattered all over the place and how, how long were they like that and how how damaged are they from that you know, and Henry puts up a good point. You know, he, he says Himalayan kinkrobers have been known to come out and bask in the 30s in the snow. And I totally believe that. But that that also goes back to mom may be basking in the snow, but those eggs are in that perfect watertight sealed nest at the perfect temperature, the perfect humidity, all that. So you know, and, that, and then it also that goes to like my wrinkles. Like, I have pictures from, you know, Tyler Ping, he's a, a photographer in South Africa. I have pictures of his, of the cobra basking on snow, just like a garter snake would. And you look at garter snakes and you look at wrinkles and they're both keeled and they're both live bearing. So it makes you think. And now you look at something like the Bolens and it's like, well, it's not keeled, it's not live bearing. So now it's really got to figure out how to get these things going oh man it's an amazing topic i really hope that yeah. in our lifetime yeah. we get to see it blossom
3: yeah i don't know that's something i've thought about for a while i before they became 10 grand that was my like plan for a species i was going to work with when they were like 3500 i was like okay what i'm going to do is i'm just going to buy one a year for five years using brettles python money and all of a sudden uh certain companies started saying that they were captive born when they weren't captive born and and uh jumped them up to eleven thousand dollars a piece
0: yeah so yeah. It's like mm, i guess my i guess i'm not gonna do this yeah for now you know things change trends change people's opinions change people's <laughs> passions change so who knows
1: riverbank zoo had a really cool setup with like a trio in it yeah i think
3: national zoo the has them
1: set up in the uh, the men's restroom
3: really like yeah, right above yeah. the urinal
1: yeah <laughs> that's gotta be weird if you're the guy having to do maintenance think, uh, and then you're like looking down there's a bunch of dudes taking a whiz
0: <laughs> who knows Maybe they liked it.
1: Yeah, maybe
3: it's it. Maybe <laughs> the the smell of ammonia is what uh it's what really triggers sure. them. We're completely <laughs> yeah. wrong about this. It's not just the smell of ammonia.
0: Smells like piss. Yeah. <laughs> this. Makes, <laughs> make some yeah. It's makes makes them eggs. Keith and Ari are just peeing into their enclosures once a week. <laughs> Minimal
1: human interaction. Yeah, right. <laughs> but
3: yeah, no, I I do wonder that. Like Maybe it really is just the human element that's stopping this whole thing. Like, you know, scrub pythons. Maybe scrub pythons breed just fine in the wild. They breed just fine in the exact same, same habitats that carpet pythons do. Well, maybe not, maybe not the exact same, but similar enough yeah. that it shouldn't be as much of an issue as it
1: is. Right. And I
2: just the if problem it really with is just
1: The human element. Like, aren't home Maheras that the reason the reason Tracy A are so tough to? To produce is because they just stress so easily.
3: That's probably far. I mean, honestly, man, everything on that island's hard to breed. The blue tongue skinks, no one has yeah. ever bred Howl <laughs> blue tongue skinks. The geckos, they're hard to breed. I don't know if they have a tree monitor, but I'm gonna assume the tree monitors there are hard to breed. It's just something about that weird, like volcanic broken continent island that just makes things not want to breed in captivity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who knows, man? And, and I hate to say it, but it may even be permanent PTSD. You know what I mean? Because so many of these animals were were field collected, whether they were field collected as babies or field collected as adults. Maybe some species or some individual animals, again anthropomorphizing, they they just they get that PTSD and they just they're so shook up they're just like, screw it, I'll just sit here and eat on occasion, you know.
1: I guess I'll just survive. I won't thrive, but I'll live. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the issue they have
3: with uh, the the Draco lizards. Like, Draco lizards, if you can get healthy ones, they breed just like every other Anole-esque lizard. The problem is their kidneys are all shot by the time they actually get here, so they Mm -hmm. all die.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, that's what Frank Payne has said in... um, With those in particular, he's like hydration when they first come in. That is the top priority is keep them hydrated because they go downhill so quick. If they don't if they don't start out on the right foot there, then. Yeah, he's like, it's they're tough.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It does.
3: And I mean, I'm sure that there are. I'm, I'm sure they're no, they're no different than any other, like, lizard with that body type. And mm-hmm. I just, I assume in nature they're basically just like the anoles in Florida. Like, they yeah. kind of just yeah. scrap around and fight, and they pick out their own, like, little couple territories on the trees. And they lay a couple eggs every year. As long as you keep them fed and feed them, or keep them fed and hydrated, they're probably fine. It's just they're half dead by the time they get in.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And they don't yeah. bounce back because they're fragile little lizards.
1: Yeah, that's another good example. Conixus tortoises, you know, Tyler's told us and talking to him, you know, those take a while to really come around to, to captivity because a lot of them are imported. And he said, you know, some of them do come out of it, but he said, he's, I think he, he told me that he still had some that just, they never fully get on board with, with the whole captive setting.
0: Yeah. He, he, he actually gave kudos to my mom because my mom's got specs that I got her and, after about two and a half, maybe three years, they really became like normal tortoises, you know. And now she picks them up and they walk around the kitchen and life is cool. But, yeah, it makes sense.
1: Yeah. And dehydration, too. I mean, that just exacerbates so many other problems. You know, yeah. like with Boyga, you know, you get imported Boiga. like keep them hydrated. Don't try to feed them like right off the bat, but just make sure they're getting plenty of water. And then slowly work towards food and then slowly work towards getting rid of parasites. You know, this is same with goniosoma you know, talking to nipper nippers, like the moment you get these, if you get them in their fresh imports and you start pumping panicure into them, you're going to kill them. Yeah. Like, it oh, just yeah. doesn't like, let them live with the parasites for a couple weeks, let them chill out, let them get adjusted, then do what you need to do. But if you bring them in same week, you're throwing in, you know, finbendazole. you're throwing in, uh, you know, flagell, whatever, like, and they're not hydrated. You're just obliterating, you know, their kidneys, yeah. or their members, you
0: know, just it's it's killing their liver and kidneys.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yep.
0: Yep. Yeah, and Scott put up a good thing too. He says he knows people that put a, a worn t-shirt, uh, the keeper wears a t-shirt, an old ratty t-shirt, whatever, and then puts it with the animal. So the animal will slowly acclimate to the, to the keeper's smell. And I know that from, in pet shops people do that with hedgehogs because hedgehogs when you first get them they're mean (laughs) they don't want to play so you you'd have your son or daughter wear a t-shirt for you know a day when they're out playing sweating on it whatever and then you throw you cut it into pieces and throw a piece in there let it get gross whatever throw it away add another piece to the shirt you know and and that helps acclimate i I totally believe that and it, it makes sense that we do that with animals with with excuse me with snakes too um that's another thing that we could put on the bowling list, you know? If you if if you're not going to attempt to eliminate the human element, why not try and incorporate it in a better way? Who knows?
3: Hey, and who knows, maybe uh ripped up shards of t shirt or a fantastic nesting yeah.
0: medium. Yeah, who knows, man? Who knows? Oof. Yeah. I argue in thing if they try to good. eat it
3: like uh like Condros do to Puppy pads, pads.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. They get
1: excited. <laughs> they get a little too excited.
0: A little too excited.
1: And they have been, That's why I don't really bother feeding live, because it's almost a guarantee they're going to wrap up that paper towel in some capacity. Yeah. Like eight times out of ten, they ain't getting just the mouse. They're <laughs> getting some extras with it. And then they hold on so to I it so they you, you can't get it out, and then they end up eating some. <laughs> from personal experience that that happens
3: so i made the mistake with blue tongues one time of usually what i do is i'll use a a piece of like paper plate to feed them with but i ran out and i had some coffee filters so it's like "Ah, whatever coffee filters are fine um i had a male eat a coffee filter Uh, he pooped it out just fine
0: the whole filter
3: yeah he ate the entire filter wow i mean it's like that big or so came out no issues <laughs> i actually didn't know he ate it i was just i don't know i guess when i opened up his like enclosure thing to look i was like eh, well i must have cleaned it and forgot yeah Oof. but no he, the entire like thin coffee filter <laughs> went went
0: through and see i i do the paper plate we thing. Don't use coffee filters for uh, for feeding yeah i uh, i tried to do the paper plate thing with uh Dromarkon. And it was at first, I was like, This is brilliant. I'll put the food on the plate, it'll go over, it'll eat the food off the plate. You know, it's not going to fight it because it knows this is dead. Yeah, that mm. didn't work. It still tried to kill all the food, and all. they just get mouthfuls of dirt. So I'm like, You know what? You want to get a mouthful of dirt? Go for it, enjoy it. They poop the dirt out, whatever. Cleanse, yeah, right?
3: Yeah. yeah, I had to pull a little bit of cypress mulch out of a ball python's mouth about uh seven days ago. <laughs> I believe it, I believe it, yeah. It was uh, it was one male. He has not eaten from me the entire time I've got him. I finally just threw in an adult mouse just to see. Like, oh, maybe maybe you're a mouser. I don't know. You didn't eat, like, the little half-grown mice I threw in there, but maybe you want an adult. Sure enough, as soon as I threw in, thunk, he grabbed it and also grabbed a big old piece of uh, cypress mulch with it. So I had to, like, wait for him to swallow it and then, like, really reach down and try to, like, wrestle it out of him.
0: Yeah. So,
3: the joys Snakes of keeping the... not so smart
0: animals. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh man. Yeah, but I think too, like, there's there's obviously not quote unquote mulch in the wild, but I imagine there would be a circumstance where a ball python may have a piece of, you know, substrate for lack of a better word, a larger piece, whether it be a a branch or a big leaf or yeah, something, leaf or and, something like that. They'd have to. And, and whether they ate it or not, I've seen so many snakes too that where they work it out. You know what I mean? And providing mm-hmm. it's providing it's a, a big enough piece or, or a textured piece. I mean sphagnum is different. Sphagnum has killed snakes for me, unfortunately. But you know a a big stick coming out their mouth like a piece of of wood. I've seen it where they'll they'll move their jaw and move their tongue and move their glottis and they'll work that and they'll get the prey item down. And then that piece will just fall off, you know? Mm-hmm. But in captivity, who wants to risk it? <clears throat> so we, we pull it out, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I had that little Condro a couple of years ago. I still have that that animal, actually. Um, or no, I don't. Uh, Alan Stevens has it. Um, it ate a little piece of – I say a little piece. It's about the size of a quarter, and you're talking about a, a juvenile Condro. Uh,
0: yeah. It's bigger than his head.
1: Ate a piece of that. That paper towel because it had grabbed it, grabbed the mouse, wrapped with the towel. So I tried to pull the towel out, and of course, it's holding on to that thing so hard that it just ripped. Right. And so I just left it be because I was like, it'll get the mouse down, the paper towel will fall off, whatever. Of course, I come in, both the paper towel piece and that pinky are gone, and I'm like, cool, this thing's done for. And I was like, it's it's done. I left it for a few days, it yacked it back up. I gave it like two weeks off of food, made sure it stayed hydrated. No issues. So
2: yeah,
1: I figured it was just you know, I was like it sat in it sat in the gut for easily a week. Like the lump was there constantly and I'm like, surely it's gonna just it's it can't process that, so it's gotta give it back at some point. Yeah. And it did, you know, and I took a picture of it. It's you know, so I don't it's yeah. It happens why i'm weird about uh feeding live on any substrate mostly because i don't feel like picking it out of the snake's mouth as it's trying to eat especially chondros their freaking teeth oh yeah
0: yeah i think uh my worst thing is is when i had that my last spin lapse passed away unknowingly no idea why and i i got a hair up my ass so i necropsied it and it had a giant mass of rotten sphagnum in its gut. And I guess every single time it ate, it would get a few little pieces of sphag and it would just stay in this one spot in its gut and stay in its stay in the spot and stay in the spot and stay in the spot. And the, you know, the, the, the digestive stuff would go past the moss and eventually the moss just got so big that it probably got an impaction and probably went sepsis mm-hmm. or whatever. And, that's why I died. So now I'm, I'm very, very particular about with snakes, specifically snakes and, and frogs too. where I put the moss. I feel like the geckos and lizards are, are pretty good about getting just the bug. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously, some sand gets in there from time to time. No big deal. But like, I don't think I've seen one of my lizards eat a whole piece of sphagnum moss. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. And I do remember I've got this is why I'd never use Aspen is I have this uh, picture. I think it's from a veterinary textbook or something like that. I don't know why I was looking at it, but they did a necropsy on a bobcat that had died. And they found out its stomach was just full of wood chips or its lower intestine was full of wood chips. And that's what killed it was every time it ate, it would eat a little bit of wood chip. Interesting. And couldn't pass it. So when they cut it open, and it was like, literally, just full. It was like a bag of. Wow. And I'm sure it was pine. Pine shavings. So it's just like a bag of pine shavings inside of it. Meanwhile, they so cut open, I've open always, sharks, and they've got license I've always plates. Always been afraid of using Aspen chips because of that picture.
0: Yeah, but what was the bobcat eating that was in the Aspen?
3: Well, it was a zoo bobcat. So I'm sure they were just feeding, yeah, bits of kibble or Missouri. I don't know what they feed uh, bobcats in zoos, but it was a zoo bobcat that was kept on uh, wood chips. And I'm sure it was not very healthy to begin with. It may have even been like a wildlife rehab center kind of deal. But, yeah, just remembering that picture and just how, like, utterly full of wood chips this thing was. Is why I just I refuse to use aspen. Partially too because yeah. you know, I unthaw <clears throat> frozen thawed in water. So when I give my snakes their food, it's wet. So if it fell on top of aspen, aspen's going to stick to it. it sticks it to no it. matter what. Oh yeah. yeah. And I'm sure oh, they can yeah. pass a little bit. It's just that fear of okay, what if a little bit gets stuck on and then the next go around a little bit more gets stuck on? Kind of like you're saying with the sphagnum moss.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
1: I want a bobcat so I can be like Joe Exotic. <laughs> mean, yeah, you're smallest. from all uh,
2: places.
3: was that guy's name? Oh, Jeff Lowe. Yeah. The dude from. What was his yeah.
1: name? Jeff Lowe.
3: Yeah. They did crack me up when I watched that. They showed the uh, <laughs> Newford, South Carolina <laughs> yeah. movie theater. Yeah. Our, our county's pride. Hey, it was a nice movie theater. I liked it when I went and I got didn't really see good you. Dog. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm afraid of aspen and not afraid of cypress mulch. Because I know I can I have think. the exact same problems with it. I think it's just because the species that I keep on cypress mulch, I... Usually try to either feed live or, you know, they're blue tongues and they're eating dog food or whatever I decide to chop up for them.
0: I don't know. I think it's also subconscious, too. Uh, Excuse me while I clear my throat. I think it's subconscious, too, where, at least with me, I feel like Cypress is more natural looking. So I don't feel as afraid with it as I do with, like, you know, Aspen or carefresh because I feel like neither one of those in their in their state obviously carefresh doesn't grow in the wild but you know what I mean like you don't just go out in the woods and find a big field of aspen shavings you know what I mean well as I feel like cypress mulch you would find a a rotten cypress knot or stump decomposing with grubs and beetles and the, the fluff of it I feel like in my mind is more natural And it could be totally in my freaking head. You know what I mean?
3: No, I think it's in my head, too. I think that's literally what it is, is that those little, like, yellow, tan, dried out chunks of uh, water so unnatural that I just associate them with that bobcat that died of impaction.
0: Yeah. 100%. 100%. Well, gentlemen... We're at two hours. Is there anything else you guys want to touch base on?
1: What do you, what do you got lined up for breeding Casey this year? Um, if I wanted
3: to, and I don't know if I want to, um, I could potentially do 13 clutches of brettles pythons.
1: Wow. Jesus.
3: Yeah. Which I don't think, I'm not think I'm going to do that. That sounds like a lot. Um, I could do six pairings of blue tongue skinks if I can finally figure these guys out. Um, I've warmed up the Sonoran gophers today, so I would like to get a clutch of uh, Sonoran gopher snakes. else have I got? Uh, I've got the Sanzinia together. Um, I don't really think I've seen any locks this year. but I keep forgetting I don't... you
0: have those. Yeah, man, I always forget you have them.
3: Yeah, they locked up a lot more last year than they had this year,
1: but... I'm still not completely counting it out. I remember last year you were sending us pictures constantly of them. them locking Yeah, they walked me. up all the time last year. I don't know what's
3: different this year. But I yeah, think I'm going to upgrade like their each enclosure other to more along the lines of what I've got the Brittles in right, right now, uh, later on this year. You know, I'm hoping maybe a little, little bit more of a layered enclosure is uh, going to be good for them. Oh, and I've got... Um, three or four clutches of ball pythons. So, I'm a I'm a sellout ball python breeder now, Jim too.
0: <laughs> nice. Nice.
3: <laughs> That's cool, I'm actually man. super excited about that. I do feel like people that really want to focus on, like, more obscure species do need to have a handful of really easy species to breed, so you're not, like, constantly pulling your hair out thinking that you're a bad snake breeder. You know? Yeah. It's kind of nice to just open up the ball python tubs and... Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of nice to open up the ball python tubs and see lots all the time. Things
1: that don't require a whole lot of, of thought or stress.
3: I get it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's fun. I can like look at my Sanzinia and like pull my hair out and do the same thing with the blue tongue <clears throat> and then like look at the ball pythons and be like, oh yeah, no, you guys are doing exactly what I want you to. That's awesome. Thanks for doing <laughs> exactly the right thing. Yeah. And I don't have to baby you to get
1: you to do it
0: right right oh man i just need my stuff to get older like i feel like i have so much 2 and 3 year old stuff that's just on the just on the cusp of being ready you know what i mean another year another year <laughs> scott says 13 clutches of fuck that
3: <laughs> this was actually the I, first year ever, where I had a 100% success rate getting them to eat the first time they were ever offered food. Let's I did say, not have a there's, single...
2: worst
1: species to get 13 clutches from, and yeah. 13 clutches worth of babies <laughs> to have to deal with. Yeah, yeah but I'll, usually,
3: like, I'll get a clutch of... I've never gotten a clutch of, like, 35, like some guys seem to do. You know, I hear stories of oh, my brittle's laid 45 eggs, and I've I usually get like 18 to 22, something like that. And usually it works out where I can get like 17 out of 19 or 17 out of 20 to eat. And there's like, you know, one more, you kind of got to like tease it a little bit and it'll go. And then there's like two holdouts. This year I didn't have that. But um, Jeremy Turgan, who uh, Brassman Reptiles, I met him at, uh, he's working part time at a local reptile shop now. And he's like, man, I've got these eight brittles, and they're just not eating for me. And I was like, uh, give them to me for a little while. I'll, I'll get them eating, and then I'll give them back to you. So I haven't tried to feed them yet, but I feel like that's going to be like my my punishment for having a really good feeding <laughs> year with my stuff. Yeah, is going to be trying to get these these eight little stubborn ones to go. I need to punish myself a little bit for having too good of a year, you know? Sure, sure.
1: We call it the fuckinging.
0: <laughs> oh man, I'm stoked because my little baby telescopus are just eating whatever I put in there now. Hell yeah! I don't, I don't, I don't scent it. I don't tease it. I mean, I'm still feeding live just because they're on it. They're, they're still babies. Why not? Right. But, dude, you hear like this is gonna sound morbid, but you hear the squeak of the of the of the pinky being consumed. But. It's so quick now where I'll open the tub and I have all the little um, uh, toilet paper rolls flattened to make like, you know, nooks and crannies and you won't see a snake at all. And I have a deli cup lid in there so that the pinky doesn't get all covered in sand. And I'll put the pinky on there and I'll close the tub and I'll turn around and you'll hear the tweet, 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 and I'll turn back and you'll see this snake carrying away the pinky. (laughs) <laughs> it's the coolest thing, man. It's morbid, but its I, I love watching it. Well, thank you, Scott. I'm glad you got to hear it, man. It was a good
1: show. I enjoyed that. So did that. I tell, I mean, tell you guys next? what I did differently
3: with feeding? What, what was that, Casey? No, so did I tell you guys what I did differently with the feeding? And this is really stupid. What's that? Um, I didn't use feeding tongs. I just... Use my hand. I really. I don't know why. Yeah, that was the biggest thing I did differently this year. Was I? I don't know. I because you know I'm actually using tongs now. I'm not using pliers like you used to make fun of me for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this time you're I didn't have to I left them upstairs. Yeah. So I had a a big bowl of like piping hot water that I had the uh, the frozen thawed fuzzies in, and I just pulled them out, and I just went one two three just to like see what happened and every single one of them just first meal they ever took that's great like i have never had snakes go on frozen thought like that so i'm sure it's one of those things where like it had nothing to do with the fact i didn't use tongs but now i'm never going to use tongs again for baby snakes well baby carpet (laughs) pythons let's not get too crazy here with all snakes but yeah 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 you know I just, I feel like there may be something to that of uh, snakes are afraid of tongs. I definitely think be. lubrids are afraid of tongs.
0: Yeah. I mean, dude, Matt most talked about it before where, you know, he was, you know, getting hemostats and and feeding tongs and tweezers that were, you know, black coated or brown coated to eliminate the glare or the shininess of it. You know, who knows? There could be something to it. You know, I'm actually shocked because I take pride that I never get bit by anything. Like I just, like I'm that guy and i got bit by the baby nova guinea three times before i realized what was happening and <laughs> i opened the tub and i had the the frozen thawed you know hopper in my hand and i was kind of like shaking the water off and i go and i got to place it like on top of his hide box because he'll just eat it you know and when i get to like here i just feel whack 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 real quick and i was like what what just happened this <laughs> is like the nicest snake in the world but Apparently, now I need to use tweezers. <laughs> so, <laughs> Ryan Cox says, Don't be raw dog and baby atrox like that.
1: <laughs> I don't want another Jake on our hands.
0: Oh, Jesus. hey, y'all will know.
1: Maybe
3: that's the trick. Maybe that's the trick to every snake. You just gotta yeah. just use yeah, your fingers.
2: No, oh,
3: baby God. Mamba's? Ooh. Yeah, why not? You're not gonna get bit.
0: Yeah, right? I was using my fingers and it got me the bicep. <laughs>
1: Uh, How did this happen?
3: Right.
0: Yeah. See, like
3: those guys on YouTube, they think they're all that tough because they're able to just pick stuff up, you know, free handling it. No, you gotta, you gotta free feed it. That's that's the new YouTube trend. You heard it here. Yeah.
0: That is, is going to get snipped already, out of this podcast. Jesus.
3: We've
1: already Casey. come this far. Why not? Oh,
0: jeez. Well, on that supernatural election. Oh, god. Justin, anything else you'd like to add, sir? Nope. Nope.
1: Uh, Casey, T H P is back Thursday. We're gonna have Frank Payne and uh, Tim Marks. They're gonna talk about the new Leap Habitats. Cool. They just put out sort of a premiere video today on their YouTube channel that talks about the product stuff. I'm about halfway through it
0: before we started. So nice. I've seen the Instagram campaign. Looks yeah, good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. It's going to be cool to talk to them about those and see what they're all about. And I've been wanting to have Frank on for a while, so I'm sure we'll we'll have him on for this. And then at some point, we'll have him on another time to get more. I want to talk about those carpet Chameleons in particular as far as what he's doing with those. So
0: have to make that happen. Yeah, definitely ask him if he got any of the recent imports. Because there's been a, a bunch brought in recently. And mm-hmm. man, some of the ones I saw, they were just stellar. Crazy purples and greens, yeah. oh, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, you guys and, know uh, the, and the
3: pygmy chameleons are going to start coming in
2: again. I don't know if
0: I don't know if they're going to. I think they're still you know protected for lack of a better word. And I know like uh, underground got a shipment from, Madagasc- from Madagascar, and uh, they got one fimbriatus, one, and it was not. Uh, it was not good looking it was very very dehydrated and sadly to say it did pass away like a day after they got it so sucks yeah it sucks but everyone was enamored with it cuz it's been so many years yeah. since we've got you know fresh fimbriatus and uh Europrata, euro ugh, excuse me europlatis fimbriatus and uh it was bad because some of the guys that worked there they they'd never seen one in person and mm-hmm. the, the first time they see it is like this emaciated horrible animal I felt so bad for him but and there's a reason why they only let so many out you know yeah. so just
1: sucks that they get that far you know and they make it all the way to the states yeah. and they get set up and then it's like yeah I'm done
2: yeah yeah, so, yeah. Oh. I
3: remember when the pygmies were like junk animals that came in yeah
0: oh yeah they were cheap yeah, they were like and readily 15 available. bucks
3: a piece and right yeah. now like no one has them
0: yeah, I uh, uh, underground got them in one time and they got a bunch of gravid females and they all dropped. And uh, I said, I'm going to get a baby and I'm going to uh, feed it fruit flies. Yeah. And um, on that I, note, I, I will.
3: Wanna... I will uh...
1: You there? Casey.
2: Casey.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did
2: you have a stroke? <laughs> <laughs> <What are> you? <laughs>
3: Hey, I'm. You guys good? You all froze for a second.
0: We good now? No, no. You froze. He's moving, but I don't think he can hear us. You guys good? We're yeah, good. no, no,
3: no. You all froze for a second. I was like trying to talk to you. Oh. <laughs> and now you're
0: frozen again. Anyway, we're we're good. We're good. So, Casey, anything you want to say? Signing off. Yeah, that was that was. Any, any
1: comments on the invisible
0: arc? Jesus. Oh, there he
2: goes.
0: (laughs) Poor guy. Uh, Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, Nipper and I put out a brand new podcast called Venom Exchange Radio. Uh, It will be a podcast solely for people who are venomous enthusiasts. We're going to try and cover all aspects of venomous from field work and captive husbandry, photography and breeding and academic stuff and you name it we're going to cover it all venom related episode one is out on spotify right now uh it should be on google and apple soon as they allow it to happen uh we also have an instagram page that we made it's venom exchange radio on instagram so definitely check it out and uh it is not on the thp or the npr feed it's on its own thing so you have to search for it by venom exchange radio so hopefully everyone gets a chance to listen to that and let me know what you think. <sighs> that's all I got, man.
1: When's the second episode coming out?
0: Uh, I think we're going to do it monthly for now. Um, if we can, if I can get more, the problem is, you know, nippers five hours ahead yeah, of me.
1: time schedules are.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And, and that's, what's rough. And, and and he's got some stuff that he's going to be doing with, with Burke and the NPR boys too. I'm, I'm going to chime in with him on a gecko thing too. So if his work schedule you know lightens up a little bit we'll probably get some more content out we have a long list of guests that are already like yeah we'll do it so if i can get more episodes recorded to like play catch up then maybe we'll do it you know two a month like every other week but as of right now it's just gonna be once a month so word yeah man and uh I don't want to give too many teasers away, but the next episode is our first guest, and uh it involves animals that go. Bzzz, so, definitely, uh, yes, yes, wasps, wasps, and rabbits, yes. Um, it definitely does not. It's it's snakes. So, Venom Exchange Radio. Go check it out. Find it, and hopefully, it'll be on Google and Apple soon enough.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, this was a good one. I enjoyed it very much so. So glad to be back. I man, this last like 2 or 3 weeks it's been rough. I've been itching to get back to to recording and uh, That's why that break is good though cuz I'm it it is, is. Like, just so amped and ready to ready to be back at it. So
0: Yeah, man. Reminds you what you're missing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um Pewter Sound Pythons. They're the ones who help bring this show to you every week. Um, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, check them out They just put out a video for their 2021 year in review, which was really good Um, Yeah, good people Check them out Once again, follow us anywhere podcasts can be found Subscribe here on YouTube uh, Like, all that good stuff Patreon, like I said We have a Patreon, dollar a month Five bucks a month, ten bucks a month Whatever, we have a couple different tiers to choose from If you feel like supporting the show your listenership is more than enough, if you ask me.
0: 100%. I agree. And, uh, cool. yeah. we also, we talked about how we're probably going to try and do a Patreon-only raffle where nobody pays extra money for tickets. Just you being in the Patreon gives you a raffle ticket. So uh, as of right now, we're going to iron those details out. And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, hopefully and go I've, from there.
1: Yeah, and I, I was talking to Billy about shirts um, for the higher tier Patreons too, so cool. maybe see if we can get some ordered and get those those folks hooked up. So yeah, be cool. Four and five tier patrons, so love it. Yep. Everyone have a good evening, good morning, good day. Whenever you may be listening to this after the live stream, and uh, thank you. THP is coming back Thursday night. We're gonna start posting those. So we're gonna have the video recorded. We're gonna upload the video to YouTube as well. so you can listen to the audio version. The video version, if you like watching the streams instead, will be posted uh, later on on as well. So or you know, the next day, whatever. So also planning to put out some more video stuff, you know, not like this, but like what I put out yesterday. Um, talking about, you know, a brief video on Biot Um had some requests for some Baird's videos and some corn stuff and uh, other goodies like that. And I know Jake has some stuff he wants to start doing as far as like herping and stuff. So hopefully the plan is right now is to start putting more content out on the YouTube channel here. <clears throat> and uh, now that I have decent Internet, I actually uploaded that video yesterday and like, five minutes, which is unbelievable because before it would have taken like three hours to upload a five minute video. So,
2: oh
0: yeah,
1: it's insane how much better this internet is. So that's, that was a big part of why I really didn't do many videos before is because uploading either at home or at work took forever for a video to get uploaded. So I can imagine. Yeah. Now that that's not an issue, I'm going to try and put out more. So a lot of stuff.
0: Good stuff. Good stuff.
1: Everyone have a good day. Good evening. All that stuff.
0: And if you're listening on your way to work, good morning.
1: See you later. Goodbye. Bye.